Hey, I'm Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week is another edition of Droughtlander Book Club, where we are talking about The Three Brooches by Katherine Lowry Logan. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander season seven and eight, as well as Men and Kilts and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into the next edition of Droughtlander Book Club on The Three Brooches by Katherine Lowry Logan. This book, I felt like, was a good starting place to pick back up with Droughtlander Book Club. I felt like The Broken Brooch was a good place to end before we got into Season 7 of Outlander. Because The Three Brooches is very much like a reunion, right? Characters that we haven't seen for a long time are making a reappearance. And it's really good to kind of see where everybody is in life. And it's been a long time since we've seen Kit and Colin. So it was like coming home in a way to meet them again, see where they are in their lives. But not only Kit and Colin, right? We've got all the Barretts, which Kit has made a significant impact on the trajectory of their lives, I feel like. I mean, you've got Frances, who is California's first female lawyer, and she's Colin's law partner. And then you've got Adam, who's a state senator, and Ben and Clint are both really top-notch vintners who have been to Italy and kind of did the apprenticeship thing and now have come back and are helping over at Montgomery Winery. One thing that I did want to note at the beginning of this book club, we talk about at the beginning, before everybody goes back and everything, about um, how Cullen dies a few months before Kit. And we're talking like this is historical knowledge that is known by the time travelers before they go back. And that Kit lives well into her 80s. So when we're looking at what changed, what stayed the same, I feel like that is an important, like, put an asterisk next to that and we'll come back to it later <laughs> type deal. Because I just feel like when you're looking at Kit and Cullen coming back and, you know, her accident saved her life and all of that, that had a significant impact on their story, obviously. But if she lives well into her 80s, then that's something that evidently always happened because there's no way she could have lived into her 80s without modern medical intervention. So it's just interesting that Elliot's old adage, there are no coincidences. I don't think that this was something that everybody's like, oh, we just went back and we started changing things and everything went to shit. Like, no, I, I legit think that this is something that always happened based off of that little point there. So interesting to keep in mind as we go through this story, all the crap that happens to all of our characters to just kind of keep that in mind, um, because I feel like it puts a different lens on everything that we're going to talk about today. There are a few significant foreshadowings that happen towards the beginning of this book before we really get into the nitty gritty of the story. And one of those is the appearance of that blasted leather journal of Jack's. I swear that thing is cursed. It's like a haunted object or something. And the minute that comes into play, you just know things are not going to end well in this book. I remember the first time that I read this story that 
when Jack couldn't find his journal and like they were all sitting around ready to leave and he was like patting himself down. He's like, where is the journal? And he went back and got it. I was like, oh, this is not going to end well because the whole journal, if you guys remember back, is the entire reason that all the crap happened with the implications into the Lincoln assassination and everything like that because him and Charlotte were home scot-free and then he realized he left his damn journal in 1865 and went back and got it and all hell broke loose. So the reappearance of the journal does not bode well for the McLennan clan (laughs) and for Jack. I mean, my God, that is one thing I will talk about probably over and over again today is, you know, I love Jack. Jack holds a special place in my heart, but that man is a trouble magnet. And like, I don't even... (laughs) Reading his POV, he doesn't do it on purpose, but it just seems to happen. Like, he falls into these things, and it's very much like a Jamie, William, Lord John situation, if we're talking Outlander. (laughs) He's that person in the Brooch series, I feel like. And another incidence of foreshadowing that we get towards the beginning of this story is this impending storm. They all arrive, everything's happy, and there's all the reunions between Elliot and Bram and David and Kevin and Kit. And then shortly after that, this storm starts to roll in and things start to go south in a hurry. Obviously, it all culminates in James Cullen being missing, Elliot suffering his TIA, Cullen having his heart attack, Kit falling and breaking her leg, Kenzie with her preeclampsia. It all goes to shit in a hurry in the midst of this storm, this deluge. And even Meredith says, like, I grew up here and I never in a million years remembered something like this happening. Like I said, there's no such thing as coincidences, but also you wonder how much the magic of the brooches is at play and exactly what they impact in the long run, because it just really does seem like this, no pun intended, perfect storm that's happening. With all of that in mind, like all the precursors to keep in your mental file effects, we're going to move into our first character discussion. This is one thing that it's one of my favorite parts about this book, that there's no real love story. I mean, you've got the story between Jack and Carolina Rose, but I don't really know if you can consider it a love story just based off of how this story ends. Like, there's no happy ending, so I don't know if you can call it a love story. But one thing that I love about The Three Brooches, it's this story thrown smack in the middle of all of these epic tales of romance. And this one, you really have a chance to kind of sit back and take a metaphorical breath, because let's face it, there is no breathing in this book. It's just nonstop action. But you get a chance to see where the characters are in their lives that we've met in the previous five books that we don't necessarily get a chance to see on the regular because there's so much emphasis on the new romance that's evolving in whatever book you're reading. So, you know, obviously Kit and Cullen and the Ruby Brooch, the last McClenna is Elliot and Meredith, and so on and so forth. So by the time we get to the three brooches, yes, we're emotionally invested in the story of all of these characters, but just because of how the the series is, we don't have time to really sit with those characters and check in on them and see how their day-to-day lives are going, etc. So I felt like this book was a really great chance to see Kit and Cullen, who we haven't really seen in like 
if we're talking brooch years, like 20 plus years. So how are their lives going? How many children did they end up having? What happened with the winery business? We get answers to all of that. You know, Charlotte and Bram, how is Bram adjusting to modern day life? And how's their relationship with Charlotte being a doctor and not really being around? And and Kinsey and David, like, how are they doing with the twins? And then this third one on the way with the three under three situation or three under four, I should say. So we get a chance to let that marinate a little bit, see how the family dynamics are evolving over time versus just kind of having it be static for everybody else and then having this big change for whatever character is the main focus of that book. We didn't really see much of Jack in The Broken Brooch. Uh, He was a semi-important character in the Emerald, and then we're getting ready to really move into the the bulk of his story over the course of this book we're talking about today, and then the Diamond Brooch. So yeah, I love that about this. And we'll get into some of the character dynamics over the course of today, and then at the end, some of the relationships that I don't have a chance to talk about as we move through. I'll talk about those all at the end. Kit and Cullen have been married for 29 years at this point. And time is moving a bit faster in their timeline than Elliot's timeline. So more time has passed for them than it has for Elliot. Elliot's only 65, so about 15 years have passed in the modern day timeline versus Kit's 30. That is a very interesting dynamic when you look into it. And we'll get into that next after we chat about this. But you really see their love for each other has never faltered whatsoever. They're just as in love today as they were when they first met out in Independence, Missouri in 1852. And it's good to see how some things change, but some things stay the same. And Kit describes Cullen a little bit and gives us kind of a little like picture. She says his hair was more salt than pepper these days, but his blue eyes still sparkled and his whistling remained pitch perfect. She's still just as enamored with this man as she was when they first met. And that love that they have has just like fostered and blossomed over the course of their 30 years together. And we see that even more so uh, when Cullen comes back and, and Kit's been injured and he kind of has this reflective moment, which honestly like brings me to tears every time I read it because it's just so heartbreaking. He's saying, well, this is his POV. It says, Cullen didn't care about the smell or the silence of the man who didn't acknowledge his presence. He only cared about the woman lying lifeless in their bed, their sanctuary for more than a quarter of a century, the only place where they could retreat from the world and its problems and be together physically and emotionally enjoying the limitless pleasure they found in each other's minds and arms and the warmth of their bodies. Like I said, some things change, but some things definitely never change. And the fact that Kit and Cullen have this bond in this relationship where they can confide each other in a way that uh, they can't confide in anyone else in their lives. And it's really them against the world in a lot of respects. You can see through some of their conversations that they've grown into their love. They've grown into life together and they accept each other's foibles and kind of know how to work around them. Like Kit didn't tell Cullen about the the message in the painting because he would have overanalyzed it and it was just easier to leave it be and <laughs> beg forgiveness later. So um, they just kind of work around each other. And we see a lot of developed marriages over the course of this book and how people have grown around each other. We see that particularly, I think, in Elliot and Meredith's relationship, especially 
when they get back to the future and they're in the hospital and Elliot finds out the kit's going to be okay. And he's like, God really does work miracles, doesn't he? And Meredith looks at him and goes, yes, he does. And maybe one of these days we'll be patient enough to let his plan unfold without telling him how it should go. <laughs> Just that little dig of patience is a virtue, my dear. We see a lot of, of that growth and being comfortable with one another and really settling into their love instead of that newness that we get in all of the books so far. Oh, one thing that I did want to touch on with Kit and Cullen, and I feel like this is very important, is that Kit and Cullen have a tiny instance of foreshadowing in their conversation in chapter one, where uh, she's talking about how she wrote the message and she's hoping that Elliot will come back and bring insulin for Emily to save her life. One thing leads to another, and Cullen says, if you ever decide that you want to go back, like, I made you that promise 30 years ago, and I will keep it. Like, if you want to go back, I will go with you. So he says that to her. Like, that's a one-on-one -on -one discussion. And then there's all this question from everyone else regarding whether Cullen will agree to take Kit back and stuff. And I think that just shows, like, how much they don't know the strength of Cullen's love for Kit, that he is willing to leave everything he loves behind, everything he's worked his entire life for, to make Kit happy. So whenever there's this question after she gets hurt about will he agree to go back, won't he agree to come back, we see these little hints dropped all the way through of, you know, Cullen absolutely hates to see Kit in pain. He makes a vow of chastity every time she gives birth to another child because he just can't stand it. Um, and I love that he's like, and then as soon as Kit's, you know, all healed up and ready to go, she made it very clear just what she thought of his vow of chastity. <laughs> anyway, so I wasn't at all surprised when Cullen makes that decision that, okay, yeah, uh, if she's going to have a better chance at survival and a full recovery, then yes, we we need to go back and we need to go back now. And I don't even think that was really a sacrifice in a lot of ways. I think it was him just having to work through it. Think of, okay, if we did go back, what are we looking at exactly? What's that going to look like? Who's going to take care of the business? And what legal preparations am I going to have to take in order for this to work? Clearly, based on that conversation that he had with Kit in the very beginning, like he's prepared to do that if she needs that. But I also think there's part of him that's struggling with that agreement that they made that gets mentioned right after Cullen finds out that Kit is ill, that they've had end of life conversations about like, if one of us gets sick, we have the option to go to the future. Would you want to do that? And they both agreed that they would rather stay in the 19th century. They've already made that decision and had that discussion. So I think that's part of Cullen's struggle as well as like he knows what Kit's final wishes are and he's going to have to make a conscious decision to override that and take her to the 21st century. So I think there's a question of loyalty there as well as the do I want to leave everything I've ever worked for because that's what he's been on Bram's ass about this whole time is that like I can't believe you left everything that we worked for blah 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 which I don't entirely think is what he's mad about with Bram, but we'll get to that here in a second. <laughs> now we're going to start talking about the McClenna clan side of the beginning of this book. The trip from hell, as I like to call it, because as someone who likes to travel, this is like a travel bug's worst nightmare. <laughs> Everybody getting sick, people going missing. It's just awful. When they find the message from Kit, 
I think it sparks a whole wave of crap. You have to remember that the clan is all still recovering from the mess that happened just a couple weeks ago in brooch time. JL and Kevin are still recovering from their gunshot wounds. All the kids and like all the O'Grady's and David and Bram and all of them are still trying to wrap their head around the whole hostage situation issue. So a lot is happening in the minds of these characters. And then it's also deeply impacted all the children, particularly James Cullen and Lincoln, who are the two kids that we really dig into their characters a little bit in this book. When JC finds the message in the painting, the adventurous 13-year-old part of him is just like, oh, I finally get to go on an adventure. And it's a very naive inclination because he doesn't really think about the fact of all the terrible things that have happened to every single person that has gone on an adventure. And this trip is no exception. So when Elliot makes the decision that it's just going to be him, James Cullen and Meredith, and then Pete and Connor are going to go to kind of guard their backs. I mean, first off, my reaction was, oh, that's going to go down like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> Yeah, everybody's going to let you three go or you five go and just keep their mouth shut and smile and wave as you disappear into the fog. Like, come on, Elliot. Come on. <laughs> uh, which is pretty much what David tells him whenever he mentions it to him. But I do love that David very much stood behind Elliot. That's his role within the clan is to back what Elliot's wishes are. But he does it in such a way that's like such a David way. Like, I feel like it's a way that no other man in the clan has. I don't know whether it's the intimidation factor or just the quiet stoicism or that like dangerous quality that he has. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a mix of all of them. But people listen to David when he speaks. That only grows as the series progresses. So when Elliot mentions at this family meeting, that's just going to be the five of them that go back, which... I do understand Elliot's hesitation to bring a bunch of people back because remember how I said that James Cullen isn't thinking about all the terrible things that have happened to everybody that's time traveled. Elliot's fully aware of how dangerous a time travel mission can be, as is David and Jack, eye rolls, <laughs> so, and Charlotte and Bram and all of them, like they know what they're getting into. There's no naivete about that. Which, it surprises me, but it doesn't surprise me. I can see all their points. Like, I can see how Elliot, as the leader of the clan, and Kit's godfather wants to go back. Meredith and James Cullen, as the descendants of Kit and Cullen, want to go back. And I feel like they have a right to be there. When we're talking about picking and choosing, probably, who had the right to go, I would say that the Frasers are probably up there. Bram and Charlotte, like... Yes, they intended to adopt Emily plus Charlotte's a doctor and Bram wants to see Kit and Cullen again. So again, I can see why they would want to go. Kevin and JL, on the other hand, I'm just like, guys, just set it out. Okay, like you're literally recovering from gunshot wounds. And no, just sit it out. And you know, that's Elliot's inclination too. He's like, why? You have no business going. Like seriously, you're still recovering from the last brooch implosion. Okay, so just stay here. 
similar vibe with Kenzie and David. I don't really know that like they had any business going as well. I mean, David wasn't going to let Elliot go anywhere without him. And I think that was the biggest stamp on the file was like, nope, this is my final decision because somebody needs to guard your back. And I really think David would have accepted Elliot's decision not to take them since Connor and Pete were going, but Kenzie was firmly putting her foot down that that she was going and nobody was going to stop her, which I'm not really sure why. I mean, I get that she wants to meet Kit, but is it that important? And then obviously David wasn't going to let Kenzie go without him. So I can see some people's points in going. I cannot see other people's points, but nevertheless, 14 of them pick up and go through the fog and uh, chaos ensues. <laughs> One thing that happens before they take off and go through the fog, I thought was really cool. Maybe this is me just being not obsessed, but I really love antiques and genealogy and like where we come from type deal. And Meredith looks at this desk that she sits at every day in her office right before they go to 1881. And she just thinks about all the people that sat at that desk before her, all the generations of Montgomery's. And I feel like that's particularly impactful when you look at the fact that she's going back to meet her four times great-grandparents. Kit and Cullen are a huge part of the dynasty that she's part of and the winery and like this Montgomery empire that she spearheads and the legacy that she's going to give to her son. So that trip, honestly, I can see how that would be one of probably the most important things that you would do in your entire life, getting the opportunity to go back and meet your ancestors. And you can kind of see that Kit has this, oh my God, moment when she's looking at Meredith because she sees Cullen in Meredith and James Cullen. That's got to be so trippy. Meeting your ancestors, meeting your descendants picking out things that you see in the mirror every day in these people. It's probably like a similar feeling to having grandchildren or something like that, but only like several times removed. So I love it when Catherine gets to play with that stuff a little bit, but also, and she may not have even thought about this and I hesitate to mention it because I just really don't want to deal with it again. <laughs> but And I know you're listening, Catherine, but this brain tumor that Kit has is like, supposedly genetic and I just really mm, I hate that I hate that this could potentially become a problem for some of our beloved younger generation characters later on and it just like it sticks in my craw a little bit like I just feel it lurking there <laughs> like a nasty shadow so yeah whenever I read that it was genetic I was like great just another thing that our characters have to worry about in the grand scheme of the brooch universe Thumbs up on that one. So I asked Catherine, this is my first Q&A question that I sent her. I said, what was Kit's plan when she painted the message in the portrait? Did she want Elliot and Meredith to raise Emily or did she not think that far ahead? Because that occurred to me as Charlotte and Bram were talking about, well, we'll just adopt her. It makes sense. Bram comes from her time. They just kind of automatically assume that role. But I did wonder, since Emily and James Cullen are similar ages, if the thought was for Meredith and Elliot to raise her. But then I got to thinking, if we're going by Kit's timeline, then James Cullen is like 30 in her mind, whereas right now he's only like 13. So maybe not. But I just wondered that. Catherine said, 
I'm sure she thought ahead, knowing if Elliot came with insulin, Emily wouldn't be able to stay in the past. Kit probably thought she was sending Elliot a young woman to replace the one he lost, which that's really sad. And, you know, Kit and Elliot have such a unique relationship anyway, which fits in perfectly with where I'm going because Kit and Elliot are my next topic of discussion. Catherine just commented, let me see. OMG, I forgot all about that. I'll have to do something about that. Uh, Do you hate me? I feel like you hate me. Oh, man. Okay. See, I told you I was going to regret bringing it up. Angela, you had to say something, right, Chelsea? Well, I wouldn't be doing my due diligence if I didn't point it out. It doesn't mean that I'm going to take any joy in it whatsoever. And I'm apologizing to all the fictional characters right now because I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Anyway, Diane, being the newbie here, it's very exciting to be able to meet your ancestors and ask them questions. And at the same time to see yourself and others in the faces of great grandchildren. Yeah, I just think that that whole idea is just so fascinating to me. So yeah, I I love it. Kit and Elliot's relationship is, I have a love-hate relationship with it, honestly. I feel like most of the time leading up to their separation, they were both in really dark places in their lives. Kit had just lost her parents and gone through the whole like knife attack, almost rape situation. That was all like some stuff that she was coping with. Elliot, on the other hand, also dealing with the knife attack, the death of his best friends, all of that. So they were both emotionally damaged. Elliot's in the pre-Meredith phase of his life. Kit is in the pre-Cullen phase of her life. They were really the most important people to each other at that point. And so they clung to each other and being separated was really hard for both of them. Harder, I would say, for Elliot, because at least Kit was going to be with Cullen. But they still have in their heads this picture of who the other person was before they were separated. Yes, logically, they know that a lot of time has passed on both sides of the gap, and that they're not even close to the people that they were when they left. But emotionally processing that change is very different from understanding it on a logical level. And I think that we not only see that between Kit and Elliot, but James Cullen also kind of deals with a similar issue with regards to that. It's an intriguing dynamic for sure between Kit and Elliot. And they're so happy to see each other at the very beginning. And it's very wonderful to see that reunion because, you know, we've been hoping and praying that one day we would get a reunion between them. Kit observes Elliot much like she did with Cullen. We see these parallels of her observations. A painter's eye because it's very much physical appearance and like how they've changed over time. And she says he had aged a few years, but the tightness around his eyes was gone and his genuine smile seemed to fit him comfortably, perhaps for the first time in his life. He had an easiness about him that hadn't been there before, ever. Love had changed him, given him purpose, and although she was happy for him, she regretted not being part of his new life. So that regret, that right there, is what eats at her. And I think she's jealous of his new family because for the longest time she was his family and coming back into each other's lives. It's that adjustment, that realization that like she's not his priority anymore. And Elliot points that out in his mental tirade after their argument. It's like there was a time in my life where I put her first 
and that I would forgive her for anything, but that ship has sailed. Meredith and James Cullen are Elliot's priority, and she's going to have to get on board with that. But I think that Elliot, he can say that mentally all he wants, but he's guilty of the exact same thing because as soon as Kit gets hurt, his first inclination is, we just need to take her back to the 21st century. I'm overriding everybody, and we need to go back. And what he's not thinking of is exactly what Kit's not thinking of, is that it's not his decision anymore. She's in her mid-50s. She has the love of her life that she's been married to for 30 years. She's got a, adult children, especially her son, James Thomas, and it's their decision, particularly Cullen's, whether Kit goes back or not. Elliot doesn't have that control over Kit's life anymore. And so it's that adjustment period of learning to fit in the lives that exist for each other now and not think of each other as they were 15 to 30 years ago. So for Elliot, I think it's even more of a whiplash situation because not as much time has passed. In his mind, she's only like mid to late 30s. For Kit, she's only 10 years younger than Elliot now. So she's experienced a lot of life. For how much life she has experienced, the degree of jealousy that she is experiencing and the emotional immaturity almost just really irritates me. And it's one of those things that puts Kit lower on the list of my favorite brooch ladies, if that makes sense. Just because, come on, you're, you're in your mid-50s. Have a bit more appreciation for the fact that Elliot has a different life now. It makes me want to smack my hand against my face because she just makes my headache a little bit. But anyway, she just becomes super hypercritical of Elliot. It is very much swinging back and forth. And you see that particularly when she learns that the house is going to burn down. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't understand her desire to save everything that they've worked for. Because I mean, like this house that they live in is like freaking amazing. It's an 80 room Italianate style mansion with all of these gorgeous fixtures. I appreciate that. I really do. And like, I understand the fact that you don't want to see everything that you worked for burned down. Like I get it. But also like you have to look at the impact of what that's going to do moving forward. And you run into this, should we change the future? Should we not? Like they call it the Mallory effect in later books, but you don't know the impact of what's going to happen later on down the road. And it's extremely selfish you wouldn't know that it happened if they hadn't told you. What right do you have to change things and completely ruin the life that Meredith has? Like she's potentially going to go back to a life that she doesn't recognize and like not have a place in her own life in the future because she's used to running a winery that might not even be there whenever she gets back because Kit wants to be selfish. And because they're not letting her be selfish, then she starts being hypercritical of them in every facet. She still like has it in her head that Elliot is this player that goes from woman to woman. And has he even been faithful to his wife? And then that trickles down to James Cullen and like James Cullen's little crush that he has on Emily. And oh, but I have to protect her because he could be like Elliot. Listen, okay, <laughs> listen, not cool. Not cool. This all makes me not like Kit. Just breaking it down like that. And I get they come to accept the changes in each other's life and they kind of learn to grow around each other and accept the changes for what they are. 
uh, which is a good change. I think we got a good representation of that acceptance when Elliot is sitting next to Kit's bed in the hospital. It's this beautiful quote, so I'll read it, both for the writing and for the emotions behind it. But it says, A young woman had walked out of his life, and an older woman walked in. He sighed and knuckled away the tears. He stroked the top of her warm hand. It wasn't the hand he remembered. This one had calluses and wrinkles. The skin was thinner. The veins were sharply defined. Memories came flooding back like photographs, some out of focus, some sharp and painful, some black and white, some best lost to time. Most of them, though, the truly good ones, brought tears to his eyes. I love that. I'm giving Catherine the standing O on that one. I love that paragraph. It really does show the merging of who they remember versus the people that they are now and an acceptance of that. At the same time, remembering that they are still the same people at the heart of it. They've just grown into a better version of themselves on both fronts, I feel like. And and they've lived life and that's okay. And they can still learn to accept each other and be in each other's lives and still love each other. They're just not each other's first priority anymore like they used to be. I thought it felt really right somehow for Elliot to be the one to tell Kit about her brain tumor. I mean, she already knew about it, but it felt right to have that conversation be between Elliot and Kit. Elliot was very scared when Kit had her accident, that was going to be it, and that they were going to have left things on such terrible terms. He was scared to death of losing her. She's like a daughter to him, and he had to let go of her before he was ready to let go, which I mean, I feel like is is always the case when a parent is giving their child to a significant other. It was a good moment. We got a lot of closure from that scene in the hospital between Kit and Elliot. And then to wrap it all up is the way this book ends. In the previous books, it's always been Elliot talking to Kit somewhere out in the universe, going, wherever you are, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. And now he gets to say it to her in person. For that reason, this book was almost like a series ender just because it came full circle in that way. And like, don't get me wrong, I'm glad it's not. But I had to double check to make sure there were more books in the series <laughs> after I read this one. I did feel like Kit's accident had a bit of an echo to Meredith's accident in The Last McLenna. They both kind of have this out-of-body experience where they like float above their bodies and kind of have this sense of peace and finality about it. I'm glad neither one of them died, but at the same time, like there was that really cool parallel. Lori, I agree, Chelsea. I also have a love-hate relationship with Kit and Elliot's relationship in this book. I get so mad at Kit. Kit and Jack were the two I was so mad at in this book. I actually wasn't as mad at Jack this book as I have been in the past, but I remember being absolutely furious with him when I first read this book. Kathy Farrow, yes, unreasonable and selfish. Angela, and she's snotty to Meredith, who is her own legacy. Yes! I'm like, listen, Meredith did nothing to you, and I'm glad that they finally, like mend fences so to speak but I'm like I don't think Meredith had any mending of any fences to do like it was Kit making amends for being a jerk so I'm glad that they finally got like everything sorted out at the end and it makes Elliot so happy to see that they're working it out but yeah just totally unnecessary Catherine does her brain tumor mess with her mind and thinking process I mean I guess it could I know it causes her headaches and stuff but it also like causes 
motor issues a little bit because Cullen mentions that um, she like dropped a can of paintbrushes or something like that. And then she made an offhanded comment about like, oh, it must be my brain tumor or something like that. So clearly with her medical expertise, like she knows that it was related to that. Granted, I'm not a neurologist, but I feel like based on how your brain is organized with like your left hemisphere and your right hemisphere and stuff, speech and motor skill, I think are like on one side and then like memory and like your artistic creativity and stuff like that's on the other side. I feel like I remember that from my biology class in college, but I I could be making it up. So I'm not a doctor. Don't take my word for it. (laughs) Lori, one thing that can either be really good or really bad about Elliot is that he is an all or nothing person. After Kit is hurt, he goes all in with her and completely ignores Meredith and James Cullen. He isn't even aware of James Cullen's disappearance. He completely loses touch with his family to his own detriment. That's a good point. So Elliot is very much a laser focused type guy. He does pretty much go all in on on Kit after she gets hurt. I also think that part of his not knowing that James Cullen is missing isn't necessarily that he wasn't told. I think it was a precursor to his TIA, which I think based off of some stuff that I read, like some little story hints that were dropped, that that was kind of impending for a a while before it actually happened. I don't know for sure how TIAs work, but like I said, speech and motor skills and all of that are on one side of the brain. So maybe not, but I felt like he maybe was told by Meredith. I can't see Meredith not telling him if that makes sense. So that's what made me think that like maybe his memory was affected by his TIA is kind of the vibe that I got. But yeah, I just can't see Meredith not telling him. And he literally had no recollection of being told that James Cullen was missing when Charlotte came in and told him. So the next character relationship we're going to chat about is Cullen and Bram. One of my favorite relationships from the series, if I'm being honest, I did ask Catherine what her favorite relationship was to write. And so Catherine, don't tell him, but I'm going to have people guess. Like, what do you think her favorite relationship or relationships are to write in the series? And then We'll come back to it at the end and see who got it right. Cullen and Bram are one of my favorite relationships. I think that part of it comes from the fact that it's a deeply rooted in the series relationship. We meet them together in the first book. They're just opposite sides of the same coin. I do feel like they balance each other out a lot, especially because Bram is way more laid back than Cullen. Cullen is very uptight and like by the book and like very stubborn and Bram is just like kind of go with the flow. They're both extremely intelligent though, very personable. I love how they play off of each other and I was so excited to get their reunion in this book because I miss that and you can kind of see how being apart has impacted their day-to-day lives. Cullen was telling Bram how Kit eventually told him that when Cullen accepted his grief and dealt with the loss of his sister, that would basically give him the coping mechanisms he needed to deal with the loss of Bram. So if Kit felt that she needed to say something about it, that meant that Cullen wasn't handling it very well when Bram left. And when they get back together, there's a lot of tension between them. And and Bram knows. Charlotte told Bram, she's like, 
I'm probably not telling you anything you don't know, hun, but uh, you might want to be expecting some intense feelings from Cullen on that. He is happy to see him, but it also like brings back all this resurgence of all of these not pleasant feelings that Cullen was feeling after Bram left because Bram was his buddy, his best friend. They've been together for a long time and losing him was very painful. I think that in a lot of ways, Cullen felt betrayed by Bram because he chose Charlotte over Cullen. I feel like that's a bias, like a double standard, because Cullen definitely would have chosen Kit over Bram had that been a choice that he had to make. And we see that. Like Kit was judging Elliot for all of his, like placing his family first, Cullen is also judging Bram for choosing his family. Even when Bram mentions, when I got back to the future, my son came running at me, my three-year-old son. I missed the first three years of his life. And Cullen just like, okay, like, oh, she was pregnant. I didn't know that. And that was literally like the extent of it. There was no understanding to it at all. And I feel like a lot of that is like a defense mechanism, not to defend his actions, because that part of it irritated me as well as Kit's reaction to Elliot. (laughs) You have to be empathetic here, okay? Like your best friend is with his family and the love of his life. And yes, he made a decision to leave everything that he had ever worked for to go to Charlotte, but you would have made the exact same decision to go to Kit If that had been in the cards after she thought that you had died in the ruby brooch. It's just very frustrating. He does eventually somewhat apologize to Bram, you know, and say, I had accepted that you'd gone back. Because that's what Bram said. He's like, I thought that you had made your peace with me going back. Like, and you understood why I was going. And Cullen said, well, I did. But you coming back just brought back all of these emotions of what I was feeling when you left the I guess it's not a matter of like acceptance. It's just not quite PTSD, but like it's reliving all of that difficulty that they had in the Sapphire right before Bram went back to Charlotte. They're such good buddies. And I just think that Catherine has said that Cullen and Kit are never going back to the past. And like she said that to several people. So I feel like I can mention that here. But um, part of that is just Cullen and Bram's bond. I feel like like they're just such good friends. And Cullen knows that Bram's not going back. He's not going to leave his family. So I think that's part of the reason that they're not more motivated. That and the medical care that they can receive in the 21st century. I just think that Cullen was being way too stubborn about it. That is one of his defining qualities is how stubborn he can be. And he just needs a little swift kick to the behind sometimes to point out that, you know, some things really are better, Cullen. Trust me. It's good for everybody, especially Kit, to see that Bram is happy and living his best life with Charlotte and his children. And I love that Kit was like, Bram's precious children could just break every artifact in my home. Like, I don't care. I'm just so happy to see him happy. (laughs) I thought that was really cute. A good, honest, I'm happy for you reaction versus the reaction that we got with Cullen. If she had had a reaction like she had to Elliot with Bram, I would have just been like, why are we even here? Why did we even come? (laughs) Okay. Moving forward, rolling on down the pipe. This crazy health crisis we got going on. (laughs) Part of the storm that, the impending storm that I mentioned earlier, it does beg the question, why did all these health problems happen? So we've got Kenzie with her swollen ankles and headaches, both symptoms of preeclampsia. She just doesn't feel right. 
she doesn't feel like she did with the twins. And she did have, mind you, uh, slightly elevated blood pressure before they went back, but nothing that was concerning Charlotte. And then it kind of just got worse. Like it compounded with everything else to devolve. Um, She's starting to have Braxton Hicks contractions. Her blood pressure is increasing even more. And the fact that she bothers David with it (laughs) bothers. First off, I'm applauding that. I feel like David and Kenzie are probably one of the most honest relationships that we have in the brooch series like they always tell each other like when it's a need to know thing they tell each other no matter how the other person is going to react to it we see that a lot with david kind of being loaded on with all the news that elliot gives him after kit's accident he knows that it's probably going to add to kenzie's stress but also knows that it's going to stress her more out knowing that David is keeping something from her. She needs to know what it is. She copes better when she knows what she's facing. So they respect that about each other, which I absolutely adore and admire. And it makes me happy. Like they're the one couple that never caused me any stress. I feel like (laughs) after the initial emerald brooch situation, they don't cause me stress. I know that they're on the level with each other all the time. And David tells Kenzie, he says, loving you isn't a choice, lass. It's my life. Please don't take any risks. Always keeping in mind the stupid decisions that Kenzie made in the Emerald brooch there at the end that almost got her killed. That's always floating around in the back of David's head. It doesn't matter that they are on really good footing with each other and have an honest relationship. Like that's always there. And he always thinks about it in intense situations. He doesn't really have to worry about her. She's smart and most of the time, like 99.9% of the time, she makes very good decisions. But he worries for her. He loves her. I thought we got a, a good snapshot at their relationship. It wasn't something that was like intensely covered in this book, but it was good to kind of see their dynamic growing as well. And as parents, like watching how they interact with their children and like discipline their children. Robbie and Henry, oh God, they're a couple of troublemakers. They give me anxiety. Like David and Kinsey might not have anxiety with each other anymore, but they're raising two terrors. They're funny though. They always make me laugh. Robbie and Henry. Kit's accident is strike number two. She has one and a half inch cut to the bone on her forehead, along with a compound fracture of her right tibia. But the main concern, the one that's like propelling this need for them to go back and seek medical attention is this fear that she has a head or a spinal injury. Come to find out she doesn't, but that whole her being unconscious, not really sure what's going on, allows them to take her back to the 21st century for that MRI that ends up saving her life because they find the brain tumor that's operable. This is the part where you wonder exactly what the purpose of of the three brooches legend is, and how much of an impact their interaction has on the world at large, as well as the stories of each of these characters individually. Because like I said, we know that Kit lives well into her 80s and that Cullen died only a couple of months before Kit did. In my mind, that means that Kit and Cullen always went back to the 21st century. Always. Because if the time travelers had that in their knowledge when they went back, thinking about everything we learned about time travel lore in the Sapphire brooch. If the time travelers had knowledge that Kit lived into her 80s, when they went back, 
for all of this to happen, that means that this trip always happened and that Kit always went back to the 21st century, always found out she had a brain tumor, always had it operated on, and always came back to the 19th century and died when she was 80 or in her 80s. I mean, that's what that means to me, like logically speaking, because I literally just started the dominoes falling of all these trajectories that these characters go on throughout the rest of their lives, especially when we're talking about like Jack. It begs the question on whether the brooches put Carolina Rose in his path and if that technically makes them soulmates or not. They certainly have that like instantaneous connection that most of the brooch men and women have, but also he meets Amy in Diamond. And so I don't know, like I just have so many questions. Despite how much I have like analyzed this and broke it apart, I still have questions. (laughs) And I think I always will, because I feel like I have new questions every time I read it. But that's neither here nor there. So Cullen, third domino to fall. Heart attack, chest pains. Also, he probably would have died much sooner had he not gone back to the 21st century and had that stent put in. Most of the time, if you suffer from a heart attack repeatedly, you go into heart failure. It's called post-myocardial infarction heart failure because I had to know that for something that I'm writing in my own book. But that would most of the time cause that heart failure that would cause him to pass away much earlier in life. So if a massive heart attack didn't kill him, that heart failure likely would have. Again, we run into this, did they always go back type situation. Elliot's TIA is something that stresses me out, but also I feel like he's got so many potential health issues (laughs) that I'm just like, oh my God. But, you know, not spoiling anything for the future, but things that we learn about time travelers and the implications of time travel on health and personal well-being made me feel a little bit better. It, like, eased my anxiety about everyone's health problems a little bit. But the TIA is very interesting when you're looking at the implications of what that has on the plot and on the characters. Because I don't really know that it impacted Elliot's life decisions moving forward too much, but I think it just gave him a healthy respect for how fragile life is and don't waste your time with bad relationships, like make sure you're on good footing with everything. And I think that that's what all of these, these health crisis for all these individual people did. It just gave them a more healthy respect for life as they know it and like making sure that they have closure and that they are really investing in these relationships that are important to them and making sure that they're not waiting till it's too late to tell people they love them and like make sure they're on good terms, etc. I think it just gave Elliot a healthy perspective on his relationships with everyone. Irritability is a long lasting effect of like stroke victims. So I do somewhat pass off Elliot's irritability to that symptom, (laughs) but also like the whole hospital situation. I feel like there's at least one incidence in every book where Elliot just completely rubs me the wrong way. (laughs) I mean, if you guys attended the Broken Brooch Book Club, you know how worked up I got about Elliot. (laughs) Catherine was even teasing me about it later because I was not happy with Elliot Fraser. And I feel like Some instances are more severe than others in my displeasure with uh, Mr. Fraser, but I can somewhat pass off his aggressive nature to his stroke. 
his fear over dying, of losing the ones that he loves, you know, like, I think that there was a lot impacting him in that situation, but also your boy needs to learn how to not be like that. <laughs> like, he needs to learn different coping mechanisms for all the stress that he experiences because it's not healthy for him. Like, his stress level at taking 14 people back in time, almost having lost his son two weeks earlier, all the potential issues with changing the future, Kit's accident, like that all compounds into this stress of this TIA that he experiences or mini stroke. He's going through a lot. I'm not going to sit here and say that he's not going through a lot. I just feel like how he copes with his stress is not healthy for him and he takes it out on the people that he loves and that's not fair to anybody. So I feel like that is a very toxic trait that Elliot has that I feel like he gets a hold on it a little bit as the series goes on and as he gets older and like develops more maturity. But also he's like 65 at this point in the series. You would think that he would have learned how to deal with it prior to now. Maybe part of him wants to be a better version of himself for his sons and for Kit. And that's what motivates him to kind of kick it in gear and get more of a hold on his emotions. There's been all this talk about like when the ruby and the emerald and the sapphire get together and that's been passed down through the generations. So what do you guys think of that legend? Like why is that legend there? Because it doesn't keep open a permanent portal like they thought it might. It doesn't unite soulmates, so it would seem. If anything, I mean, it did impact the trajectory of a lot of people's lives. So, I mean, maybe we could look at it that way, but I'm curious to see what you guys think on that. Lori, oh yes, Chelsea Elliott was horrible in the broken brooch. Yeah, I was not a fan. Kathy, seems to me that Elliot acts like an entitled selfish bully, especially in hospitals. Yes, hospitals are like a trigger for him, I feel like. Like, he just reverts back to his selfish old Elliot ways when a hospital is mentioned at all. It's ridiculous. Catherine, we don't have an answer to the soulmate question yet. Oh, on whether the three brooches bring soulmates together. Yeah, I had thought about that. I have thought about that, believe it or not. If you're saying what I think you're saying, which means James Cullen and Emily, I have thought about that. So yes, um, but we don't know. We don't know yet. We have no answers as of yet on it. Hopefully within the next couple of books, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Hopefully we will get answers. No comment. Yes, that is my prediction. Has not been confirmed. It is my prediction and observation as a lover of this series. I'm going on record with that. Oh, we'll find out in Moonstone. Okay. I'm waiting patiently, or maybe not so patiently, but I'm waiting because <laughs> I don't have a choice. Okay, so I asked Catherine, what is the real purpose of using the ruby, sapphire, and emerald together, if not to travel unimpeded as people thought? She said, if they hadn't experienced the fireworks, would they have understood what happened in the topaz? I take your point. So a little plot work there. For those of you that don't know what happens in the topaz, stay tuned. It's towards the end of the book, so um, you'll need to at least get that far. But I do I do agree. Like in my, I think what happened in topaz probably would have been quite a bit more startling had they not experienced what they did with the brooches. And then she continues and says, I think it was brooch lore created to keep the three brooches together. But JC answers your questions in book 13. Yay! Judy is confused about the brooches. Why did they need three brooches in this book? What did I miss? So up till this point, they are of the belief that 
only soulmates can use a single brooch. Soulmates are united by the use of one brooch. So the three brooches allows them to travel back all together for a mission that is not soulmate related is kind of the the thought behind using the three brooches together. All right. I know you guys are going to love this next one. Charlotte and Bram. I do love me some Charlotte and Bram. We get a better idea of what their relationship entails. This book, we saw a lot of their, you know, initial love story in the Sapphire brooch, but we haven't really had a good idea of their relationship as of right now in the series up until this point. Bram is, as predicted, like a very protective papa bear of his children, has a very close relationship with Lincoln and Katharina, um, particularly Lincoln. Like Lincoln is a daddy's boy through and through, which I absolutely adore. And I love that whenever they're getting ready to go back through the stones, Bram says, I'm traveling back in time with my wife and children. If I could take an armored vehicle, I would. (laughs) He very much like David wants to protect his family at all costs. And I think as they grow in the series and take on more of a like senior role within the McLennan clan, that protective nature bleeds over into being protective of everyone in the clan as well. But as of right now, it's like very much focused on him and his children. He would do anything, haul himself over hot coals for Charlotte. So I think it makes it that much more powerful to see the decisions that they make to separate in this book. It really shows the strength of their characters. I feel like And this is probably one of the more unique features of Charlotte and Bram, and I talked about it a little bit in Sapphire when I did the book club there. But I feel like Charlotte and Bram are unique within the Brooch universe because they stand separately. They're stronger standing together, but they're very much their own separate entities in who they are in their lives. Doesn't mean that they don't work together very well. They have a very good, strong partnership, but they don't meld into each other and they're not not codependent on each other like some of our brooch love story characters are. We see that in spades in this book because... You know, when Bram realizes that he's going to have to go to San Francisco and look for Jack, but Charlotte can't leave and Charlotte has all of these very sick patients, he knows that the likelihood of him getting back before one of them turns critical and needs to go to the 21st century is, it's just not probable at that point. And so despite the fact that they've lived apart before and they don't want to do it again, they're willing to make these sacrifices for their family because that's who they are. I mean, Charlotte's a medical doctor. Bram is a soldier. They're both used to leading into the fray and like making the tough decisions. And I think that that's kind of a double-edged sword in a lot of ways because that aspect of their personalities allows them to make these sacrifices and these really tough decisions. But it's also a bit of hubris, in my opinion, because they're making the assumption that nobody else is capable of making these decisions, especially when it comes to Kevin and JL. And the fact that they just basically pinned Kevin and JL into a corner and were like, no, you're just going to have to live with the decisions that we make and be separated from each other. That wasn't cool, in my opinion. And so I feel like that brings in another highlighted area or theme is like this fracturing within the clan that the three brooches, it's not only a degradation of everyone's health, 
but also the the relationships that are going on. Like there's a lot of tension that is caused by decisions that people make without it being a group consensus. And Bram and Charlotte's decision to have Bram and JL go to San Francisco and not tell JL that Charlotte's going to go back to the future, take Kevin, supposedly, like this is the idea, take Kevin and just leave and that they just be separated. I mean, that's just kind of cruel, in my opinion. It's not just separating JL and Kevin. JL's son is in the 21st century. I guess Bram is thinking, and this is true, she's the VP of global security for the McLennan Corporation. So that's her job. But not feeling like they needed to clue her in to the decisions that they were making. They needed to trust her and Kevin to make mature adult decisions and like bring them in on it versus just begging forgiveness later. That's a huge thing that's happening. Oh, we'll just do it and hope it's okay with everybody or like figure it out later. And I feel like that's a marked change that you see moving forward in this series as well is after the disaster that is the 1881 trip, every decision that is made is made as a group. If people don't agree, they talk it out until they come to a consensus that can work for everyone versus everybody making their own decisions and the hell with it. Because that's a big problem. And Kevin resents them, JL resents them for it. And it just causes even more tension because it's like, look, Kevin's in his mid 40s and he's very able to make difficult decisions. He was an EMT slash medic. He knows what it's like to make difficult decisions. And they're projecting that seeing him as his younger self type deal and that's incapable of making tough choices. And that's just not the case. And so I feel like, yes, it was a learning experience for sure for everybody. Um, this 1881 trip on so many different levels. Like I said, the idea of Bram and Charlotte separating is not a pleasant one, but it's a decision that they make. The person that was almost impacted the most by this decision was not Bram or Charlotte, but Lincoln. Like I said, Lincoln's a daddy's boy. He's old enough to vaguely remember a time when he didn't have his dad with him. He 100% is going to blame Charlotte for separating him from his dad again. So I think that Charlotte made the right call in letting Lincoln go back for Bram. I can't even imagine how difficult of a decision that was to allow her 10-year-old son to travel through time without her or his father. And so I admire, again, her ability to make the tough decisions because they're the right decisions. I think it's more difficult watching Lincoln be separated from Bram because he doesn't fully understand why He knows that it's being done to him, but he doesn't have the emotional maturity yet to understand that it's a necessity. So having that resentment towards Charlotte, I feel bad for Charlotte, honestly, because she's the one that has to take her son home and deal with his resentment and his lack of understanding in the situation. And she'll still do it because it's the right thing to do, but that's a mountain to climb for her. And then, of course, we get the little surprise, the Christmas surprise at the end of this book for Charlotte and Bram, which is their third pregnancy for their little girl. I thought it was so apropos that they went into this story expecting to adopt a little girl and they didn't end up needing to adopt Emily, but they ended up getting their second little girl anyway. I really like that. Lori, Sapphire is my favorite. The Lincoln assassination, the trial, the history of it is amazing. 
The Civil War is such a fascinating time in American history. There were so many moving parts and so many little facets of things going on. It, it really, like, I go through a rabbit hole every time I do research. Like, literally something that I think is going to take me 15 minutes to look up ends up taking me three hours. <laughs> Angela, that is an issue with traveling with such a huge group. Consensus is nearly impossible. Yeah, it is. Um, and that's why I feel like it's so important to have your ducks in a row before you go. <laughs> because if you don't, like, it's hopeless trying to to keep everybody organized. We're going to talk a little bit about a theme that I saw kind of emerge out of my deep dive into this book. It's something that I like to call the changing of the guard. Because up until this point in the series, the young guns, so to speak were all the people that we're seeing as mature, functioning adults now. You know, we get Kit and Cullen, David and Kenzie, Charlotte and Bram. They were like the first gen and Elliot and Meredith were the definable mother and father figures. Throughout the course of this book, we really start to see almost a struggle of power, if that makes sense. It's not like a negative thing in any way. I don't think that it's intentional. I don't think that it's done with any malice. I think it's just like a natural progression of how things are going within the clan. You have people that are getting older. You have younger characters that are coming in. And so it's the shift from how things began to where they are now. And the first time that you get something like this mentioned is through Kit's perspective. And we see when Elliot and Kit get in their argument about the fire, David steps in kind of between Kit and Elliot and tries to de-escalate the situation. In that moment, everyone kind of comes around and backs David and they're like, okay, yeah, like maybe we'll go do this and maybe we'll go to this and trying to diffuse all the anger and the tension. And in that moment, Kit looks at David and wonders to herself if he is the de facto leader now of the clan. David's in his late 30s at this point very much growing into his role as Elliot's wingman. His goal will always be to back Elliot no matter what, but Kit is seeing how much everyone respects David and values his opinion. Kit at this point has been gone for so long that it's kind of like an outside perspective in a lot of ways, which I thought was unique when we're looking at clan dynamics. And then the fact that whenever... Elliot is like flat out convinced that they need to take Kit and go back to the 21st century. David is the one that stands up to Elliot and says, look, I get that you're worried about her, but she's not your wife and it's not your decision to make. And I feel like other than Meredith, maybe Charlotte, David is like the only man in the family that can really stand up to Elliot in that way and be like, look, this is not a good decision and I'm not going to let you make it type deal. Elliot and David in particular have this very interesting dynamic in this book. It's like a shifting of roles almost. You can start to see things kind of starting to evolve into the story that we are, are getting throughout the rest of the series as people's roles within the clan change over time. But further to the point, like it's not just that we're getting this from Kit's perspective or David's perspective because Bram, whenever... He's talking to Charlotte about the need to go back, you know, like we might have to separate and you might have to take your patience and go and like, we'll catch up later. We'll figure out a way to get back. Bram 
tells Charlotte, you need to talk to David about it because Elliot is too distraught to make any decisions right now. So like, there you go. Like you've got two senior members of the clan that are also talking about David being the person that they need to talk to in that moment. That all being said, you've got David's role shifting, but then you've got Bram's observation of of people like Kevin, where he says, Kevin went quiet for a minute, his hands at his waist, fingers drumming a tattoo on his hips, staring at Bram without blinking. Then his determined eyes seemed to change color, turn darker, and Bram saw Elliot's eyes glaring back at him, assessing him. That said a lot about all of these younger guys in the clan. It signifies that they're all maturing and becoming their own person and taking on these more methodical, powerful, intelligent leadership roles within the clan. They still defer to Elliot, and he will always be their leader. But it's not a what he says goes anymore. Like they're all very capable of putting in their two cents and making intelligent decisions. And then to top it all off, I think what sealed the leadership deal for me with David is the scene where Charlotte tells him that she intends to take everyone back and leave JL and Bram and Jack behind. David says, we don't leave family behind ever. (laughs) I love that James Cullen makes the observation that like if David turned his ire on him, he might piss his pants. David has a lot of alpha energy, as as Angelus mentions um, in the comments. And uh, he's also a soldier. And one of the biggest things about soldiers is you all come out of it or none of you come out of it. Even if one of you should fall, you don't leave the body behind type deal. Nobody gets left behind. And so for David, that's a really tough call to make. He would go down with the ship rather than leave somebody behind. And it's only when somebody like Charlotte makes the suggestion that these people are too ill to continue and like we might lose one of them if we don't go back. But he still refers to Kenzie. He wants to know her thoughts on it because she's also a soldier and she also understands that mental state, that inclination to never leave anybody behind. I loved kind of seeing that all evolve over the course of this book. It's not just like the one-on-one conversations and things like that where we get a chance to see relationships between characters that we don't necessarily get to see on a daily basis but we also get to see people's roles within the clan changing as well minor side note whenever they all get ready to go back the moment where james thomas comes in and says goodbye to cullen and then kisses kit and says tell her i love her when she wakes up he was the first baby boy of all the baby boys in this series and I just loved that so much. But like, he's all grown now. And he's like, everything will be as you left it when you get back. Angela. Oh, Elliot and David is another fun relationship to write, I imagine, for Catherine. It's a fun one to read, for sure, isn't it? Um, especially in later books, as their relationship morphs into the, the mythology of the series as well. So we're going to get into a little bit of James Cullen. He's probably one of my favorite characters of the series, especially as he gets older. And I'm so excited for Moonstone because I know that part of Moonstone is going to be an elaboration on his character. He's so fascinating to me on so many levels. And I think that part of it is because we saw him be literally not even a thought. And then all through Meredith's pregnancy and like all the way up through his toddler stage, all the way into the man that he is currently where we are in the series in Bloodstone slash going into Moonstone. I think it's so fascinating to see 
his character development into a young man and seeing where he is in this book. He's like a cocky little mix of both of his parents. He's got Elliot's charisma. Meredith's always trying to instill like a little bit of humility in him, rightfully so, because he is, like I said, very cocky and it gets him into trouble a lot. So trying to kind of calm that inclination in him is something that I think was one of the major positives that came out of this whole trip back to 1881. He learned a lot, and the things that he experienced in 1881 impacted him so much that we still see the resonancy of that throughout current day. I mean, I think the biggest thing that we need to talk about is JC and Emily. It's something that kind of just covertly got dropped by the wayside and don't think I haven't noticed. (laughs) Um, I still think something's going to happen with these two. I'm shipping it. We'll see where it goes. The moment that I saw these two together, they were so freaking cute. Kit thinks that JC has met his match in Emily, like finding someone who is just as intelligent and witty as he is. And I think that's why James Cullen is so enamored with Emily, because she's unlike any other girl that he's ever met. And this book starts out with Elliot talking about how all James Cullen's questions about Elliot's relationship with Kevin's mother have really brought up all of these birds and the bees type situation about love and sex and relationships. It says James Cullen must have said disgusting a hundred times, but he didn't once try to change the subject. The lad didn't have a girlfriend yet, but based on Elliot's personal experience, that first kiss could happen anytime now. He knows that James Cullen is right at that age where, you know, you first start to get crushes on people and that initial attraction is there and you don't really understand what it is, but it just kind of bubbles inside you and you're just so curious. It's perfect timing, to be honest, that Emily makes this appearance in his life. You know, he's very smart and amicable, but so is Emily. You know how we talked about Cullen and Bram being two sides of the same coin? JC and Emily are too. Like I said, it kind of fell by the wayside. It got really quiet as they kind of grew up and became the people that they are, but I'm very excited to kind of see where it goes with them as adults. I hope if and when it picks back up with them that we like Maybe get some, not flashbacks, but like we get to fill in the gaps a little bit of like maybe some interaction that they have had with each other. Because, you know, they have this very special bond. James Cullen promises Emily in this book, I'll never let anything bad happen to you. Like you'll always have me when we go back to the 21st century. And so I would like to think that they continued that relationship over the course of the next 15 years of them growing up together. The seeds were laid here for something amazing. So I can't wait to see it pay off. So the relationship between James Cullen and Lincoln is also something that I'm hoping in future books we will see pick back up because they seem to have such a cute, fun relationship. They're like brothers, you know, because James Cullen's an only child and he didn't even really have like the kids of the clan to grow up with like a lot of these younger generation kids do. He was kind of just like out on his own. And I think that lends itself to his mental maturity because he was around adults and talked about adult things for most of his childhood. So that's, I think, part of why he's so far ahead of everyone else his age, because he he didn't spend a lot of time with other kids his age. So 
his relationship with Lincoln was really special because Lincoln is the closest in age to him. And there's a three-year gap there. And I love how whenever JC first uh, develops this crush on Emily or whatever, and he wants to go see Emily, and he says, this was one of those rare times that James Cullen didn't want his cousin tagging along. He loved Lincoln. He was like a brother, a much younger one. And he wouldn't understand why James Cullen wanted to be alone with Emily. A much younger one. <laughs> like that whole three years is just an insurmountable gap. Let me tell you. You know, as an adult, three years is not a lot. But when you're looking at the difference between like 13 and 10 year old, when you're that young, it seems like forever. But I just thought that was so cute. And, you know, despite everything, like I said, they do have like a brotherly relationship. So I hope Lincoln comes back into the picture at some point so that we can see how JC's relationship with Lincoln developed over the course of time as well. Catherine says their story will develop over a couple of future books. Well, that's good to know. I'm very much looking forward to it. So remember how I was talking about how Kit's jealousy drives me up a wall? Part of the reason that it annoys me so much is not necessarily because she's jealous. Everybody gets jealous, right? James Cullen has a very strong instance of jealousy in this book that I'm getting ready to mention, but it's the fact that she's in her mid-50s and she's acting <laughs> like a jealous child. Because JC, he makes a comment when Kit comes up to Elliot while they're like watching that stallion cover the mare. Kit comes up to him, puts her arm around Elliot. And JC has like this thought in his head. He's like, wasn't a big fan of Elliot and Kit fawning over each other. As he's in the cave or whatever, and he's like, has some time to reflect on his emotions and on his actions. He says, it wasn't that he was being uncharitable. He was feeling downright jealous. So he's just, he's very honest. He's a very honest child. And I think that being in the cave and being away from all of these influencing factors really gives us a chance to see him stripped down away from all of the bravado that he has of trying to impress other people. And we really get to the heart of who James Cullen is when he's in the cave so that when he gets out, he realizes his mistakes. He realizes that he, you know, made some questionable decisions. But I think what helps in him sorting through his feelings with Kit and his dad and like all of that stuff is that he talks to Sarah about Kit. She says, you remind me so much of your Aunt Kit whenever she was younger. That is the first time that James Cullen has ever been compared to Kit in any sort of way. And that makes something click for him because suddenly he realizes that it's not necessarily a preference that his dad has for Kit. Like he's not putting Kit before James Cullen. He doesn't love Kit more than he loves JC. It's that he loves her as much as he loves James Cullen. James Cullen and Kit are similar because they were both raised or had an influencing factor being raised by Elliot. That fieriness in them, that independent streak, the charisma and charm, that comes from Elliot. And so he's realizing that he and Kit have more in common than he initially thought. And I think that helps him to accept his father's relationship with her. We're going to talk about that blasted cave again. I need something good to come out of the cave, all right? Because otherwise, I'm just negatively going to associate it. Every time it's mentioned, I'm like, oh, things are about to go to shit again. <laughs> because nothing good ever happens with this dang wine cave. <laughs> Two books in a row now. 
Yeah, it's starting to really cement itself in my head as as something negative. When James Cullen gets stuck in the cave, we start to get mention of these little camping trips that David and Bram take Lincoln and JC on. They just strand them out in the woods, strand them out in the woods, and give them an emergency map back to camp, but they have to find their own way. James Cullen reverts back to that time and again, and you see that, and like, he really wanted to use his pen light, but Uncle David's number one rule was don't waste your supplies, so he had to use his lantern before he used the pen light. That training that Lincoln and James Cullen both go through with Bram and David pays dividends in spades. <laughs> in this trip, we see that with Lincoln whenever he goes to save Bram and Jack and all of them once they get taken hostage. And we see it with JC in trying to get through the cave and like he stops every five minutes to build cairns and he only uses his flashlight when he needs to. Thinking about all the ways that he can possibly make his life easier during this really difficult situation. Yeah, you're stuck in a cave by yourself. What do you do? Me? I'd be panicking, right? Um, and as somebody who's prone to panic attacks at this point in his life, I cannot believe that James Cullen just didn't completely dissolve into a puddle, like curl into the fetal position and not move until somebody found him. So kudos to him for keeping his shit together. Other than like learning to get a grip on himself, he learned two important lessons. One, to check his ego at the door. Yes, he might be the most intelligent person in the room, but there's no need to flaunt it. That's a very key thing, I think, for a child of his age to learn. You might have something to bring to the table, but it doesn't mean that you need to be arrogant about it. And then two, life isn't about being perfect and brilliant, but about finding a personal well of courage. You're going to go through difficult things in your life, and it's not about handling things the right way, like the perfect way. Everybody's going to make mistakes, but it's about having the wherewithal and the fortitude to continue on despite all the difficulties that you will face, which I think is a very valuable lesson given some of the things that he experiences over the course of later in the series. No comment. <laughs> despite how cocky he might be, he's also dealing with some stuff. After everything that happened in the broken brooch with kind of being stranded and on his own and not knowing what to do or where to go, or not having anybody to go to as a child looking for an adult to tell them what to do. He was on his own. That emotionally took a toll on him to the point where he's he's dealing with some shit. That combined with the fact that he's just a kid. He has a lot of really powerful personalities in his life. Lots of type A people, lots of take charge. That causes him to have a lot of doubt about himself too. So I think that his bravado is a lot of times an attempt to make up for where he feels he's lacking. But, you know, he's constantly comparing himself to his mom, his dad, Kevin, Uncle David, thinking about how, well, he's not as good as they are. So in some ways, he's kind of humble, but that's like, it's just me, myself, and I. Deep down, I have my insecurities type deal. But what I project to the world is this confident individual. So I feel like that was a very human moment for JC. While... James Collins in the cave, we get the first glimpse at his gift, the gift of sight, as Kristen puts it. Kristen appears during JC's darkest hour and helps give him the gift of sight, like not give it to him, but helps him develop it. James Cullen is like extremely blessed. He's a very unique 
individual. He was born out of love from the brooches and he's descended from a long line of people that have supernatural gifts of some sort. He's also the son of the keeper. I just feel like there's a perfect storm brewing for him genetically and emotionally. And I think that that's really going to develop into something super cool. So I'm very excited. Um, Rumor has it that we're going to learn more about that in this upcoming book. So I'm very excited. Like I love all the mythology of the series and stuff like that. And it gets more pronounced as we go. But this is one of the first really cool hints that we get at this. It's described as a mental picture, much like a photograph coming to life through the development process took shape in his mind and he could see the cavern in all its sand washed earth tones. So it's literally like with your eyes closed, you're able to see what's in front of you through the darkness. And I'm just thinking about like, because this is the beginning of this gift. This is like where it manifests. And then according to Kristen and Cullen, this is just going to develop more and more over time. And the fact that James Cullen went to Cullen about it, and this is mentioned like kind of just as a one line thing at the end of the three brooches that James Cullen went and talked to Cullen about it and Cullen was discussing it with him. It makes me wonder if Cullen has some sort of gifts of his own other than Kristen watching over him and being his guardian as well. But it really does make me wonder if there's something more there to that discussion that Cullen and James Cullen had. Oh, to be a fly on the wall for that one. And JC's gift kind of does get mentioned again in Sunstone, but in a different way, which was so fascinating to me. So like, I can't wait to get to these book clubs like later in the series where we can talk about how it's morphed and changed over time. My question to Catherine was, what conclusions can we draw about JC's gift? How do they develop? And why now? That is my biggest question. Why, when he's locked in that cave, is that the point where James Cullen starts to develop his gifts. And you can't sit there and tell me that it has nothing to do with the brooches. Everything has everything to do with the brooches. But Catherine's answer was, in hindsight, it must have something to do with Emily. And we won't find out until book 13. So there you have it. It has something to do with Emily. I think it also has something to do with the fact that he's the future keeper and that the legend of the three brooches is impacting him in some way as the future keeper. I don't know anything that anybody else doesn't know, but that's my inclination as I'm like putting the pieces together. Angela says, oh, I definitely think it's a genetic thing. You see a touch of it with Meredith too. You see it all through his line. There's a point where it's mentioned that I think it's in the broken brooch. There's actually somehow in that line, in Meredith and James Cullen line, there it somehow reverts back to the Barretts. Somehow, some way. I don't know how yet. So we see Sarah with this gift. We see potentially Cullen now after this conversation that James Cullen and Cullen have had about his gifts. So that's a big question mark, but I fully believe there's something going on with Cullen. We see it with Meredith. So yeah, I just think there's a lot there. And even Elliot, as we go further on into the series, he, as the keeper, develops gifts as well, like a sort of knowing or intuition, especially where the stones are concerned. So at least part of it has to be genetic. Diane, the gift of sight has everything to do with genetics. Connie, I think it has to do with need at the time. It was always there, but manifested because he needed it. Oh, yeah, that's a good thought. I buy that. Something connected or hardwired at that point because he needed it. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Diane, it's a kind of higher intuition. Some people believe in it and some choose to ignore it. 
I'm going to talk about that here in a second when we get further down um, into some of the different characters, because I think all of these characters in the Brooch series have a gift of some sort. They're not all the same, like not all gifts are created equal, but I think some choose to use their gifts and some don't. Catherine, there's such a Wizard of Oz influence in this series, and there may be a man behind the curtain. You know, I've always wondered that, but then I kind of just allude to it as like the brooch gods because there's always this thing where it's like the brooches have a mind of their own. But is it the brooches or is it somebody controlling the brooches? Like, is it like a mwahaha type deal? (laughs) I really hope we get answers someday. That's the first time I've heard you say something like that. So that's very interesting. JC eventually gets found in the cave. Kenzie, true to form. Solving puzzles like no tomorrow (laughs) overlays the modern winery map with the 19th century winery map and realizes the cave hasn't been searched yet and sends Kevin to get JC. And here's where we start to get into Kevin's character a little bit more. Poor Kevin. And you know how I was saying when we were talking about everybody that should be going, they all had like their reasons for wanting to go. Kevin had no business going, absolutely none whatsoever. And we really see that once we start to get these chapters from Kevin's perspective. Not only physically does he not have any business being there, but mentally, like he's struggling with PTSD so badly to the fact where whenever he thinks about going in the cave to get his brother, he literally has anxiety about it, like starts shaking and his heart starts racing. And I applaud him for being brave, but also... What are you doing? What are we doing, Kevin? (laughs) It's just so hard because his instinct is telling him to run the other way, basically, like let somebody else handle it. But he also, like Bram and Charlotte, has that inclination to help people to make the tough decisions to do what needs done no matter what. And so he knows that he's the only viable option right now. So he goes to get JC. Now, Kevin makes a point here in his POV. He says, his gut told him to get out of there, to leave this job to someone qualified. He was a CPA slash former paramedic, not an adventurer or a soldier. He hated guns and violence. He was a lover, not a fighter. And he didn't want to be anywhere near another dark, damp, scary cave. That's a very honest moment for him, but it also tells us a lot about where his head is at moving into the diamond brooch because we're going to see Kevin reach his breaking point in the diamond brooch. And I feel like it's very important to recognize that moment for Kevin right now. Like he pushes himself this entire book past probably what he's like mentally or physically ready for. And that has a profound impact on where he's at emotionally when the diamond brooch starts. Recognizing that he's not comfortable with this situation and doing it anyway. Like a person can only do that so much before they're just like, fuck this shit, I'm done type deal. Kevin's getting there. And I think, especially when we're talking about him going to help save JL and once again, having to hold a gun and point it at somebody and potentially shoot them, there's a lot of resentment there. He's not that person and he doesn't ever want to be that person. And he feels like he's constantly being 
cornered into these situations where he's having to do something against what he personally believes for JL and for other people. This is kind of all laying the groundwork for the cliff that we see Kevin fall off of. So I wanted to make sure to point that out as well. Once Kevin gets into the cave, he finds these cave paintings, which I'm also thinking might at some point, since we have all these archaeologists in the family now, might come into effect because they find all of these vivid pre-Columbian monochrome and polychrome paintings of murals of land animals, sea creatures, and humans. And they're actually found out to be the work of the Shamash people, who were a seafaring people that existed circa 1300 BCE. I feel like there's probably going to be something, right? Like, this is going to come back into play. It can't just be a red herring. It's too convenient to be on Montgomery Winery property to not come back into play at some point in the series. So, turns out it's actually a good thing that Kevin listened to Lady Yoda and left the cave because it was full of methane gas. (laughs) Oops. It's kind of crazy that they didn't know that that was down there. Yikes. I guess that probably reinforced James Cullen's relationship with his Lady Yoda. 100% he trusts her now because she saved Kevin's life as much as she saved JC's and Cullen's. So that bond probably really solidified with that little piece of knowledge and gave him the inclination to listen to her later on in life. She's kind of his instinct, you know, like that internal voice that you hear. Here, I'm going to talk about a little bit of an interesting little writing technique type thing. In back-to-back chapters, chapter 28 is where James Cullen is kind of making his way through the cave. And chapter 29 is where Kevin is on his way to rescue JC and starts to go down into the cave. And there's some really cool sentence structure parallel here where you really start to see the connection between the brothers. I mean, we see that they have an emotional connection. Kevin was around basically for... James Cullen's entire life and was an older brother to him anyway. So I feel like that relationship for them was just the next step, I guess. It was a very easy role to slide into that brother title. In chapter 28, we get this from James Cullen. What was he afraid of most? Bears? No, it was too early for black bears to hibernate. Then what? Was he afraid of falling into a pit? No, he didn't think so. Taking a wrong turn and wandering through the cave for hours? Maybe forever? No, he didn't think that was it either. Then what? I mean, all of those are viable fears, if I'm being honest. Anyway, um, and then in chapter 29, Kevin says, why couldn't he focus on finding James Cullen instead? Because he was scared. But why? There weren't any woolly mammoths in the cave and no drug dealers either. No one would be firing a gun in his direction. There were a few snakes and rats and bats, but he could handle those, couldn't he? (laughs) They're both talking to themselves. They have this inner monologue, asking questions and like answering themselves, voicing their uncertainties to themselves. They would never voice it outwardly. So I thought that was a cool connection between the brothers. That also develops into my next topic, which I can actually thank James Cullen for this one because I internalized this question. Could character be developed in darkness? And I was thinking about that, literally thinking about it. And then I was like, you know, that's actually a theme in this book. And that's very clever. (laughs) She literally just like served it to me on a silver platter. Because a lot of our characters in this book are really struggling with some dark stuff. 
at one point or another. And we see the coping with of PTSD as a linking factor for Kevin, James Cullen, and Jack. These characters, coincidentally, are all the people that are developing character and darkness throughout this book. And they're all suffering from PTSD from one thing or another. <laughs> Catherine says, it's all by accident. <laughs> so yeah, the, the PTSD through line is very interesting to me. I'll talk about Kevin first. After the shooting, he's really suffering. And whenever it's mentioned to him by Charlotte that possibly or maybe it's Kenzie that mentions it, that JC possibly has PTSD. He's like, well, he wasn't hurt. So why would he have PTSD? And I feel like that was more of like a defensive, maybe denial on Kevin's part. Like he doesn't want to admit that he has PTSD, let alone that somebody who didn't even go through half of what he's gone through has PTSD, because that would like mean one plus one equals two and that Kevin has PTSD. But how could you not after the events of the broken brooch and getting shot and dealing with all of that? And especially like for Kevin, he was in a situation that without JL, he would never be caught dead in. I don't think he would have put himself in front of a bullet for anybody but JL. Wouldn't have gone into a cave and been shot at repeatedly by the Mexican cartel if it weren't for JL. You know, so he makes these decisions because he loves JL, but also, like I said, it builds up a lot of resentment towards JL too that kind of all boils over in the next book. You could also say that Kevin has a lot of trust issues after what happened in the last book because he's recently just found out, like within a matter of probably a month, maybe, maybe six weeks at the most, found out that Elliot is his biological father and that he was lied to for most of his life about his biological parentage. So when things happen like Charlotte revealing that Bram just took JL and like, oh, we'll figure it out later. We're all going to go back to the 21st century and didn't clue Kevin into that. That was very triggering for him, like not being in on the conversation and not being allowed to make his own decisions and being lied to essentially. So Yes, Kevin has a very adverse reaction to that in that holding up the brooches and saying nobody's going back until I say so type deal. But Charlotte also lied to him in saying that, well, Bram and JL have the sapphire brooch so they can go back whenever. And uh, Kevin's like, um, no, they don't because I have it. So, hmm. but I mean, that didn't earn Charlotte any bonus points because yeah, like I said, Kevin's having some trust issues right now anyway. And then like you flat out lie to him about it and... That's not gonna be good. And, you know, he hasn't come out and point blank said that he is dealing with these issues, but it's something that Charlotte and Kenzie have both put together. Charlotte's a medical doctor. Kenzie is suffering from PTSD from her time in the war in Afghanistan. So they can both very easily recognize PTSD. And so they're able to tell what Kevin is dealing with. He's short-tempered. He's jumpy. He's not sleeping. And Kenzie even says, you're probably having impotency issues and you're yelling at me. And like Kevin kind of outs himself on that one. They know. They just want Kevin to know that it's okay to admit that he's dealing with these things, but they want him to actually deal with it. And I feel like he's not ready to deal with it at this point. Uh, he's not ready to deal with it until he's forced to deal with it, unfortunately. But that very much links him through to both James Cullen and Jack. James Cullen's PTSD is, is a little bit different because it's more of a situational PTSD versus suffering a physical trauma. That PTSD leads to severe anxiety for JC. He feels guilty for things, even though it wasn't necessarily anything 
bad that he did, but he puts it as he's failing to live up to his own expectations. And I feel like part of that anxiety is probably the expectations that his own parents put on him, but also it has to deal with what he had to be responsible for when it was just him, when everybody else was either being held hostage or whatever. So he had to be the adult. The idea of having to be put in that position again of potentially making the wrong decision in a life or death situation is very scary for him, I feel like. And it it induces an anxiety attack right off the bat. He goes into a panic attack whenever Kit gets hurt. His mom and dad are helping with Kit's surgery. Kevin's unavailable. David and Bram and Charlotte, all of them are unavailable. And he just freaks out because he wants to be a kid. He doesn't want to be in that position where he has to make all of these really big decisions and be responsible for the outcome. So yeah, that's that's a big thing for JC to deal with. And it literally propels him into the cave where all the stuff happens there. And I think that Catherine did a wonderful job of portraying a panic attack. One sentence per line anxiety riddled questions a lot of self-blame going on and even this distorted reality where he's like everybody will blame me because it was my idea to come back and if so and so dies they'll never forgive me and yada yada whenever you're suffering from anxiety your mind just goes a mile a minute anyway i would know and sometimes you just can't turn your brain off one tiny little thought grows into this terrible like unrealistic scenario that you've got in your head of how things are when in reality It's not like that at all. So I thought that that was a very realistic portrayal of an anxiety attack for sure. And then we've got Jack, who's also suffering from PTSD, not from the events of six weeks prior, but from the events of, what is it, 10 years prior, 12 years prior, whenever he was involved with the Lincoln assassination. This part of Jack confounds me. For someone that is still suffering so severely from what was done to him 13 years ago, he still makes a lot of stupid decisions. There's a direct correlation between the decisions that he's making in this book versus the decisions that almost got him killed as a conspirator in the Lincoln assassination. Like I said, it's confounding. Nonetheless, his PTSD is still very prevalent in his character. He zones out at the sound of chains rattling and locks clicking, and he associates the sound of lock clicking with the hood that he was forced to wear of the sense of isolation he had during that time. It's very much like a negative trigger for him to experience those things. And that's something that he deals with on a regular basis. It's something that Bram knows about Jack. I love that part of their relationship as well, that they like understand that part of each other. There's a sense of grief and loss that Jack has, almost a through line. I guess his PTSD is magnified is what I'm trying to say by his sense of grief and loss. Something that David said to Jack really rung true with me. He said, you know, self-harm is an addictive trait. And I got to thinking about that. And you know, like in Sapphire, we learned a little bit about Jack in his early years and like when he lost his father when he was really young and had to grow up really fast. And I think that harming himself and dealing with the implications of that self-harm is easier for him in a lot of ways than dealing with how his actions impact others and dealing with his own grief, if that makes sense. So I think that's a key thing to understand about Jack. He's not necessarily coping in the most healthy way, if 
that makes sense. Which, I mean, honestly, does it surprise anybody <laughs> that Jack is not coping in a healthy way? I mean, does he do anything the healthy way? I don't think he does, to be honest. I'm going to take a brief pause to talk about, well, from the actual plot of the story, to talk about a little bit of history, because I know you guys all like history. I don't know if any of you know what the Barbary Coast is. I had no clue, so I Googled it. You can draw inferences from how it's mentioned in the story, but I didn't know what it was. The Barbary Coast, like the actual literal Barbary Coast, is an infamous stretch of coast in North Africa from Morocco to Libya. It's infamous because back in the 18th and 19th century, it was notoriously known for piracy and the slave trade. San Francisco's Barbary Coast is named after that stretch of coast in North Africa. And it was the original red light district for San Francisco. It covers modern day Chinatown, Jackson Square, and North Beach. And the debauchery and dirty dealings that you had in the Barbary Coast really developed out of the gold rush in 1849. You had two specific groups, the Hounds, which were Mexican-American war veterans that came to California and they literally made it their life's mission to make minority residents, like make their lives a living hell is basically what they were there for. And then you had the Sydney Ducks, which were a group of ex-convicts from Sydney, Australia, that came in and they created a, a bunch of brothels and then basically robbed and mugged all of their patrons as they would come through. But also they were responsible for setting like a string of fires in San Francisco to cover up all of these murdering sprees that their gang members went on. So it was a very dangerous place. And then also on top of that, you had the concept of Shanghaiing coming in, which was where sailors would come in and drug these guys and then basically kidnap them and put them on a Pacific sailing vessel and force them into service on that sailing vessel. So that happened with alarming frequency. <laughs> and that all came out of the Barbary Coast in San Francisco. So that's the kind of area that Jack was originally intending to go to. So remember what I'm saying about Jack's questionable decision making. But the reason that I mention this is because there's a, a mention by Jack. He says, since he was heading over to the Barbary Coast, he would be able to juxtapose the debauchery there with the exquisite beauty of the conservatory of flowers. When you look at that, like that was his original purpose for visiting the conservatory of flowers to juxtapose this exquisite beauty versus this terrible, dark and depraved area of San Francisco. And then when you reflect that onto the story that's actually being told through Jack's eyes throughout the course of this book. He does this with Carolina Rose. He holds her on a pedestal compared to all the dark stuff that is happening underneath. And he is constantly referring to her as this exquisite ethereal beauty. He associates her with a flower a lot, like uses that sort of language. Like when he's describing a blush, he says her cheeks bloomed with a rosy glow or when he's talking about her scent, he says it reminds him of a Virginia spring morning of his garden's daffodils and even orange blossoms after a rain. And then at the very end, after she passes away, he says, 
You are the only one for me, my beautiful, perfect Rose. And I hesitate to say that Jack didn't love her because I I know he did. But also, it was more of an idealistic love. But the fact that she was in the midst of all of this darkness surrounding the Confederate gold and everything that happened really put a spotlight on her and highlighted her and made her look better, like airbrushed her in a way, because she wasn't flawless. And we know that as we continue on through the story, like we know that she had her faults. We know that she was involved with the Confederate gold. We don't know how much she knew or at what point she she flipped sides, but we know that she wasn't perfect. That realization is is a lot of Jack's journey towards acceptance and closure in the next book especially but yeah it's not a soulmate kind of love there's definitely that connection there which tells me that the brooches were involved somehow but it's very much a throw caution to the wind type deal i feel like it was idealized it wasn't like (laughs) legitimate so jack grew up in the south and like charlotte was raised with impeccable manners this is a man that was raised differently from charlotte you have to remember charlotte and jack have different childhoods now because of the mallory effect of uh, time travel jack was raised in one of the most prominent families in virginia one of the original founders of the state and was raised in society circles it's kind of explained it says jack had grown up in the south which had informed his social education with proper etiquette and impeccable manners. He might have occasionally behaved like a cad, but at least he did it respectfully. (laughs) At least he's honest. We'll give him that. I feel like this informs him a lot. Like whenever you're looking at who Jack is, on the outside, he's very polished. Inside, he's got a lot of growing to do still, but he hides it well, and at least he does it respectfully most of the time. Jack also has an absolutely insatiable curiosity. It is his downfall 75 to 80% of the time, especially in these early books. That fact about Jack is absolutely known. It's what helps Bram and JL track him down because they know he'll be wherever the story is. So that's how they find him. But it raises the question, does that curiosity make Jack selfish? And I don't think Jack is selfish. Do I think he has rose-colored glasses on a lot? Absolutely. Absolutely. Despite everything that he's gone through, has a naivete about the world and how it works. I don't know that that makes him selfish. I think that he has the best intentions most of the time. Like this whole adventure that he goes on to San Francisco, he figures that he'll at least have 24 hours to get everything he needs to get done and get back before anybody has any time to miss him. It's not that he didn't think that he would be missed. It's that he thought that he could isolate everything that he needed to get done and get it done before it became an issue. He just underestimated everything that was going to ensue. Angela, I don't think that it's the driving force to him at all, but that is how others perceive him. Connie says, I think he comes across as selfish, but I think he's oblivious. I don't think what he does is intentionally selfish, but he does just follow his own thoughts. Yeah, it's definitely not intentionally selfish, no matter how you swing it. But I feel like selfishness is inherently intentional in my head and like how I perceive selfishness, that in order for it to be classified as selfish, you have to intentionally make that choice. And that's my argument with Jack, that it's not intentional. And so for me, I think that he just, he underestimates a lot 
he also is impossibly optimistic 95% of the time. And that creates this perfect storm of other people, like you said, perceiving him to be selfish. So remember how I said I was going to come back to everybody has their own gift and some people choose to use it and some people don't. I think that Jack's curiosity and like story magnet aspect of him is somehow a gift. And I think that it probably could be developed over time. I think he's an amazing storyteller. We see that come through in, in sort of like his descriptions, like the poetic nature of his dialogue and his descriptions. But I also feel like he's just innately drawn, like stories literally fall into his lap. Bram even comments on it. He's like, I've searched for this damn gold for years, like decades. And you literally show up and within a couple of hours, it's literally on your doorstep without you even trying. Like, how? How does that happen? So I think that Jack has a gift of some sort. It might not be fully developed because after all the difficulty and all the troubles that he's gone through, he might be trying to smother it. He might not be embracing and trying to grow that aspect of himself. But just how things happen around him based off of that. I mean, look at everything that happened in Sapphire. It happened to him. He didn't go looking for it. It happened to him. It's either a superpower or a curse. Jury's still out on which one. I mean, he even comments on it. He says, a treasure, a story, a mystery called his name. Was he crazy? Yes, he was. And this time he was probably eligible for commitment to Bellevue. So he knows that like, this is just part of him, but he's going to do it anyway, because it's calling his name. This tattoo that Jack has is called an Unalom. I posted a picture of it in the group. So if you did not get a chance to see it and want to kind of envision what it is, I posted a picture of it. It starts out as like a swirl and then it goes up and then it crisscrosses back and forth and then it swings all the way up and it has like dots at the end. It's actually a Buddhist symbol for the journey to enlightenment. I found it so appropriate that Jack has a unalome up his back. Man, like that's such a cool tattoo. <laughs> like really cool. So each section of this tattoo has a different meaning. So the spiral at the bottom symbolizes birth and discovery of self after your birth, becoming an adult version of yourself, basically. And then it goes up into the series of winding loops back and forth, which each of those knots and curves symbolizes a situation of change or a point of inflection that makes you a stronger person in your life. Each of those little loops is like a point of contention or, or a life lesson that you learned throughout your life. And that symbolizes your growth through life. And then as you get up to the top, it just turns into a straight line up which it signals maturation. You've literally learned and you've reached the pinnacle of your life and then you go up and then there's three dots as you ascend into your spiritual form. And so I thought that that was really cool, especially when we look at the fact that Jack probably has one of the most in-depth stories. Jack has the longest and most complex story of any of the characters in the Brooch series. He is consistently moving forward. And like, I feel like he's referenced back to in a significant plot way a lot. Like even in Bloodstone, we got to see him as a completely different version of himself from who he is in the three brooches, but it was still super intriguing. And like watching him develop and grow as a father is just so fascinating. But the scene between Jack and Carolina Rose 
Okay, show of hands, who has read the book, actually read it, and who has listened to the audiobook? Because up until this point, like until I did this book club, I had only listened to the audiobook. And if you have not read the actual physical book, I'm sure it's probably like that on the ebook too, but I, I'm not 100% sure. There's a chapter in the actual book that is not in the audiobook. And I did not know that. So it was like some super behind the scenes, like, what? I don't remember reading this. Like, I feel like I would have remembered reading this. But chapter 38 in the book, like the physical book, does not exist on the audiobook. It goes straight to chapter 39. And what chapter 38 is, is the scene between Carolina Rose and Jack where she sees his tattoo. Like she actually walks in on him changing and they have a conversation about his tattoo. And it is a very sexually charged and very intimate conversation where you get like an artistic eye on his tattoo and like all the symbolism of it and everything. It was also very prophetic. <laughs> I felt like talking about after you figure out which way is up, once you find your path, the rest of your life becomes a series of ups and downs and eventually you fade into nothing as represented by the dots at the top. That's from the book. So this is like right before all the stuff with Carolina Rose happens with her passing away. Right now in her life, she is in a pickle. She's working with her uncle on doing these paintings and knows about the Confederate gold, but she's also falling in love with Jack. So does she tell him, does she come clean? And then, you know, she, she ends up struggling with her uncle for control of the gun and he pushes her and that's what gets her killed. So like it's these these struggles on this journey to enlightenment, not only for Jack, but for Carolina Rose as well. So this chapter that like, I just had no idea existed was just like mind blowing for me on so many levels. <laughs> I remembered reading about it when Jack sees the sketch that Carolina Rose did of him and he tells what happened, but the actual scene of it happening was not in the audiobook. Not on purpose, mind you. I did ask Catherine about it. She just didn't, it, it got overlooked. But yeah, that was, that was crazy for me. Lori says, that's an important chapter because her vision of him without his shirt is what informs her sketch. Oh, for sure. Carolina Rose creates this connection between Jack and JC in like the most unexpected way. And they're both these really confident men. I mean, I know JC's 13 at this point, but... But Carolina Rose creates the same kind of reaction in Jack that Emily does in JC. <laughs> they both knock him off of their pedestals a little bit. And like, they're both left fumbling and not really sure what to do and what proper protocol is basically when their usual approach does not work. James Cullen says, Kevin had told him how to talk to girls, but he couldn't remember anything at that point. And then Jack is his infamous Mallory smile just isn't working. So I love that that line that gets drawn between Jack and JC because they both go on these journeys to enlightenment, both over the course of the story in this book. Carolina Rose, she's very much on a pedestal herself whenever Jack looks at her. I mean, it's not missed on anybody that she's extremely beautiful, but I think you're jumping 10 steps ahead, Jack is, in assumptions that like beauty equals innocence equals she had nothing to do with it. A lot of assumptions are being made based on initial impressions that Jack is getting off of Carolina Rose. He describes her and says, 
call it essence, call it sense of self, whatever it was, it couldn't be taught, manufactured, or purchased from a plastic surgeon. Simply put, an aura surrounded Carolina Rose, and he willingly crossed the gossamer barrier, all the while acutely aware of the emotional risk. When he first meets Carolina Rose, and this is another clue that Carolina Rose is not really his soulmate. He doesn't really have any intention of staying in the 19th century. He says he does, but at the end of the day, like, I just don't think he does want to stay. He's very adamant that Carolina Rose is going to come home with him. And then as an afterthought, he's kind of like, or I'll stay if she doesn't want to come home. He doesn't want to think that far ahead. And he doesn't even want to be honest with her about where he comes from and like his implication in the Lincoln assassination and all of that, because that would mean that there's a potential for rejection there. And he, he doesn't trust her to love him in spite of all of it. I just think there's a lot hinting at the fact that she's more of a stepping stone to his true soulmate because Jack really needed a wake up call. He needed something to jolt him out of this phase of his life that he was in. And he was forever changed by what happened in this book, which he was sorely in need of. Like, it's devastating that it had to come at such a cost. But I don't think anything less would have impacted him the way that it needed to, to prepare him for his future. Carolina Rose makes a comment to Jack. Whenever they're getting out of the carriage before they go into the Hopkins mansion, she's talking about how heavy she must be. And Jack says, you weigh nothing compared to the sins I carry daily. And Carolina responds with this. She says, since we are all sinful creatures, I will pray I am heavier than any burden you are forced to carry, any pain you are required to endure, or any grudge you cannot forgive. I thought that was irony. <laughs> irony personified was what that was, because Carolina Rose becomes the pain he's required to endure, the burden he is forced to carry, the grudge he cannot forgive. She becomes that for him for a long time until the events of Diamond where he, you know, is forced to recognize that things may not be as he originally thought they were. Those words, like, I feel like initially it was a weight lifted off Jack. Like, oh, she understands me. You know, like she gets it. But really, it's just one wicked instance of foreshadowing for that character. <laughs> Catherine says, and what would Sophia think of her? Oh, God. See, that's what I was thinking. I just don't. They would either really get along or really not like each other. Sophia is almost the modern version of Carolina Rose. I feel They'd either be two peas in a pod or complete opposites, like just not get along at all. Angela says she is so opposite to Amy, which I loved. Yeah, Amy's wonderful. David recognizes that, or maybe it's Bram, recognizes that Jack needs somebody more forceful in nature to call him on his bullshit, basically. And they don't think that Carolina Rose is that person for him. Everybody from the outside looking in is like, this relationship does not make sense. You know, they're like, mm, something's off here. And Jack is the only one. And it's because he's in it. And he's feeling what he's feeling. But at the same time, it's uh, lots of red flags there. The Confederate gold is the big plot moving portion of this book. It's largely the back half of the book. And if you've read Sapphire, which I'm guessing you have, if you're listening to a book club on the three brooches, you'll know that the Confederate gold was the Confederate treasury that Jefferson Davis took with him when he fled Richmond. Bram's original orders were to capture that and bring it back, and he didn't. 
I actually watched a really interesting show the other day about the Confederate gold. It's called Rebel Gold. It's on Discovery Plus. It's actually like treasure hunters looking for it, but it actually follows kind of like the path that the gold took south. And I didn't realize this because basically the extent of my Confederate gold knowledge is what I have read <laughs> in the Celtic brooch books. But it was actually recaptured by the Union at one point, and they started to take it back north. And then the Union contingent that had captured the gold was robbed. And that's where it disappeared. I thought that was very interesting. But in the Celtic brooch world, I guess the Confederacy just got away with it in, in the brooch world. It's at least is like how I'm understanding the story. Bram actually looked for the Confederate gold for several weeks to several months after Jack and Charlotte left in 1865. Like that was his goal. Before he moved back out to California, he was looking for the gold. And even once he came back to the 21st century with Charlotte, he continued to look for it. He's been looking for it for years. And so that's why he's kind of pissed off when he finds out that it literally fell in Jack's lap. It actually incorporates the Knights of the Golden Circle, which is this Freemason-esque type brotherhood that was very strongly tied to the Confederacy. Brigadier General Albert Pike, amongst other prominent Confederate soldiers, generals, and politicians, developed this society whose goal was to gather money and create a powerful enough confederacy for a second rising of the confederacy. According to Jack, they had uh, roots that go back to the Scottish Rite Freemasonry and the Knights Templar. And in the 19th century, they had three orders of military corps, a financial contingent, and a leadership cadre or cater, however you want to pronounce that. When the, the confederate gold finds Jack, because let's face it, Jack did not find the confederate gold. This has already been in motion for a long time. Carolina Rose's uncle owned a plantation in New Orleans. And when he passed away, her other uncle, Edmund, who she's doing these paintings for, liquidated the estate and gave the funds to the Knights of the Golden Circle. I'm assuming that the liquidation of those funds and whatever else is what's being shipped to San Francisco. And that is what is arriving that they are offloading at the pier. Because after Jack and Bram are taken prisoner and all of that, they leave with the gold, the Knights of the Golden Circle. And it's not until everybody gets back to the 21st century that that treasure is found. And so I'm guessing it's the liquidation of Edmund's brother's estate was added to the pot that was already at Point Reyes. This treasure is all just, they've been adding to it and adding to it until they get enough money together for the Confederacy to rise again. After thinking about it and like how it happened in the plot, that's kind of what I'm thinking happened. Carolina Rose's involvement in all of this is where it gets to be kind of a sticky situation. It's the mystery element of this, right? You're not exactly sure what role she's playing in all of this and how it's all going to manifest into a plot resolution, so to speak. And I mean, we do find out through solving of the mystery and all of that, that she did know about it, despite Jack's illusions that she didn't know about it. Originally, Carolina Rose was commissioned to do 40 paintings for Edmund, and that has been reduced down to 21. Most likely, we can assume that that was because of the restricted timeline of the treasure arriving in San Francisco and all of that. They wanted to get it done and get out of there. So they're basically, Carolina Rose's paintings are, are a treasure map. 
And it reminds me of, I can't remember what it's called, but one of my favorite shows on the Discovery Channel is Expedition Unknown with Josh Gates. And one of the episodes that he did was about this book that was published back in the 80s, I want to say, or something like that. And it's basically a treasure hunt. Like the guy that wrote this book hid a bunch of caches all around the United States and then made paintings and drawings and clues and stuff in this book. And if you could solve it, you could go and find the cache that he hid. This is a legitimate thing. This isn't made up. And this is what this reminded me of a lot. Carolina Rose's, all of her paintings have hidden images in them, like a highlights magazine is how they refer to it. And if you can sort out all the hidden images and clues that are in these paintings and drawings, it'll lead you to the treasure. So one of the big things here is how did those images get there? Because Jack, like I said, was adamant that Carolina Rose knew nothing about the treasure. But if she knew nothing, how did they get there? Because Edmund suffered nerve damage in his hand after a fight when he was younger. So he can't draw or paint anymore. So we know he didn't add it. Unless there was another artist in play somewhere along the way, which is looking more and more doubtful, uh, because of the timing of it all, it just didn't work. Carolina Rose knew about it. At least she knew that she was drawing a treasure map. Whether she knew what the treasure was and what the intended purpose of it was, we'll probably never know. But she knew that she was drawing a treasure map. So the plan was for Jack and Bram to like follow it, identify what it was, and then turn it over to Pinkertons and let them deal with it. They were trying to stay out of it. We all know that doesn't work. <laughs> okay, they don't stay out of it. I don't think they ever could have stayed out of it because Pike had his eye on Jack. Like, you have to remember, this is not very far out from the trial. And so when Jack was implicated as a conspirator, he was a folk hero of the South, right? And then when he was acquitted and it came to be that he was framed, he became an enemy of the South and he was more of a, a hero of the North. All of that, like, rolling into one, Jack's very infamous and Pike knew who he was the minute he laid eyes on him. So Albert Pike wasn't ever in the Sapphire, but Jack's reputation precedes him just like Pike's reputation precedes him. And Jack immediately knows who he is. They're on each other's radar. And then when Jack is recognized at the Hopkins mansion, Jack knows the jig is up. We're all in danger because I've been implicated. Like they know that I'm out to get the gold. So, you know, a reasonable person would just be like, hmm, Okay, yeah, well, I'm probably going to get shot if I go after it. So I'm just going to go home instead. Not Jack, not Bram. Nope. <laughs> and I know I can hear it now. You guys are going to be like, but what fun would that be, Chelsea? You can see your little fingers typing. But it all morphs into this hostage situation, like I said, where the truth about Carolina Rose slowly starts to come to light. But I think the biggest thing to come out of this hostage situation, I mean, first off, we get a little bit more of Kevin's PTSD again, setting groundwork for the next book. That's what a lot of this book is, I think, is setting groundwork for everything else that comes in the next couple of books. But Kevin freaks out at the idea of losing jail and goes to San Francisco to save her. And seeing what he believes is her unconscious, 
he loses it. Like he just, he starts shaking uncontrollably. He goes into a blind panic. He feels like he can't breathe. And it's a damn good thing that Connor and Pete were there is all I'm going to say, because if they weren't, he likely would have got himself killed. And I'm glad that Pete is like, I'm not going to let your fucking impatience get her killed. We did the Pete in JL for a long time and you know, we did it right. And that's the only reason we survived. And I'm not going to let you ruin that. The calmer heads prevailed in this situation. Thank God. But the standout performance for this whole scenario is Lincoln. He's highly intelligent, like his mother and his father, but he's also really cool headed and resourceful. He is like Bram made over. Like it's so good to see. Something else that I found really interesting Because like I said, we get Lincoln and JC and their point of views. Lincoln's point of view is so calm and like so polar opposite from James Cullen. James Cullen's point of view is like kind of frazzled and loaded with insecurities. I mean, granted, I know a lot of that is from his experience and in the broken brooch, but also like Lincoln was also kidnapped in the broken brooch. He has every right to have his foibles too, but he doesn't. Like he's got a very cool head. And so that's why I'm like so interested to see what he's been up to in his life. But there's this quote, and I think that this sums him up very perfectly. It says, no matter how scared he was, he wouldn't quit. He would give his life to save his dad. He's just mature beyond his years. And I love reading him. And I'm like, really After rereading The Three Brooches, I'm like anxious to get some more of him like as a grown up. And I know Catherine commented, I think it was on her page that he'll be the subject of future stories. So I'm ready for it. Carolina Rose's demise. Obviously, the implications for especially Jack are life changing for sure. Remember how I said that like Jack is optimistic to a fault. And I think you can see that he's so convinced they are soulmates you know, nothing ever bad happens to the soulmates in these stories. Like she might be injured, but she would come out of it whenever they get back to the future. For a split second, he feels the embrace of the soulmates club. And I think that he's felt like he was kind of the odd man out in a lot of ways because he was like the last man standing. But that gives him a false sense of security so that when she passes away, he literally hits rock bottom very quickly. Um, It's jarring for him, I think. Probably for somebody who thought he'd been through a lot in his life, he probably thought he'd already hit rock bottom and then he just went like 10 feet further down. But this is where I kind of talk about how poetic Jack's point of view can be sometimes. This is a quote from when Carolina Rose lays dying in his arms. His life was coming apart. A loose thread was being pulled and had been for some time. Everything he knew and cherished was coming unraveled. The change was no longer imperceptible. The change was here. It had arrived unannounced. He'd been sensing all of this time that change was gonna come. He didn't really know what that change entailed, but he could sense it in the air. Now it's here. And it's like his worst fear because loss is the change. Like I said, if he hadn't experienced a loss of this magnitude, it wouldn't have changed him to the degree that he needed to change. He wouldn't have had the level of maturity and understanding that he had. And so that when Jack comes back into the story after he disappears for a couple months and goes to the monastery and does whatever else, he comes back into it and he has a level of wisdom about him. And he says, when you accept your pain and understand that grief is your new reality, you change. 
your perceptions change, your desires, your passions, everything you once believed and held sacred changes. It's not that change is bad, it's just different, not what you're used to. There's a level of acceptance in that, and I think that that's what the monastery gave him. He puts it as like you're unable to run away from it there, like you're faced with it day in and day out until you accept it. And then when you accept it, you can start to understand it and learn to grow around it. But that he couldn't have done that anywhere else because he's so busy with his day-to-day life that it would have been easy to compartmentalize that loss and kind of shove it aside. Whereas at the monastery, you're forced to live it. But it also sets an interesting jumping off point for Diamond because along with that realization of grief and that being his new reality, he also says that if this is the price for love, he'll never pay it again. He's done. So like I said, that's just very interesting considering that the next book is literally his love story and the brooches have other ideas. I hesitate to say that I liked it because like I don't enjoy reading emotional anguish, but I liked that creativity and nuance there of that arc for Jack. So I asked Catherine, how did Carolina Rose's appearance in Jack's life impact the trajectory of his story? And she says, Carolina Rose was there to lead him to Amy. He was never the same after Carolina Rose's death, but he eventually became a better version of himself. A better version in spades. And by better version, I mean, he was already a good guy. He's always been a good guy. It's just, he was a bit naive, a bit reckless. What happened with Carolina Rose taught him to like rein in his recklessness a little bit. It's not that that insane curiosity isn't still there, but he can contain it a bit more and channel his energy into a good force instead of like letting it roam unchecked and just wrecking into things like a bulldozer. (laughs) We're closing in on the final stretch for this book club. So one relationship that is beginning to be touched on in this book, but is not completely explored, is the relationship between Jack and JL. It starts here. It's a very antagonistic relationship. They are not fond of each other at first. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that JL lives in a very black and white universe. There's right and there is wrong. Jack's world is very gray, even colorful. And I think that he views her as like a stifling influence because he even mentions like he doesn't know how Kevin puts up with her and her type A controlling rigid personality because Jack needs somebody who will like let him be creative and explore that side of himself. Whereas when JL looks at Jack's attraction to Carolina Rose, she thinks that Jack is way too extroverted for Carolina Rose. And this is actually where she's watching Carolina Rose draw her picture of Jack. She sees Carolina Rose as like retreating into her art rather than talking about difficult topics. But in reality, that's not not the case at all. It's just interesting to see the dynamic between Jack and JL where it starts here in the Three Brooches. JL looks at this sketch of Jack and she's just shocked because this is like a very sexy image of Jack, like with this sculpted physique. She finds herself like, like, mm, damn type deal. And then she has to take a step back and be like, oh, this is Jack. Like, why do I feel this way? 
And then she realizes that it's not necessarily that she's attracted to Jack. It's the fact that she's looking at a picture of Jack that is drawn through Carolina Rose's eyes. It kind of brings up the idea of like beauty is in the eye of the beholder type thing. Jack is desirable and sexy in that picture because he's drawn by a woman who thinks he's desirable and sexy. So it's not necessarily that JL has a personal attraction to him. It's just that Carolina Rose is a very talented artist. Okay, Charlotte and David. I talked about this a little bit over the course of kind of my discussion. Charlotte and David had a relationship that developed and I absolutely adored in the Sapphire. And then it kind of fell off the wayside once Bram came back. But I love that in this book, we see that that's a relationship that never really went away. It's always kind of been there in the background. Bram mentions it to JL when he's like, David won't let anything happen to Charlotte like he loves her. And JL thought that was really weird. And he was like, oh, it's unrequited love. And he has Kinsey now, whatever. Like, he's so laid back about it. But it is. It's still there. And you can see it in the way that Charlotte and David talk to each other. I'll read this quote. It says, she crossed the room and sat beside him, remembering their trip to Washington City in 1865. It was then that she discovered the loving and remarkable man beneath a cool demeanor. In all these years, her opinion of him had never changed. She loved him and always would but not the way she loved Bram. And then she says, all the men in the McClinic clan were compassionate and capable of selfless love, but David ranked at the top. She walks in on him giving Kenzie a back rub in the hospital, and she thinks about how he used to rub her back when she was pregnant with Lincoln. So it's drawing those connections, bringing that relationship back into the fold and exploring where they are 10 years later. This is developed into a very good, full, rich friendship for them, I think. Especially when you look at the fact that David is Lincoln's godfather, much like Elliot is Kit's godfather and looks out for her and feels responsible for her and feels like he's her advocate. David feels the same way towards Lincoln. And so when there was a decision to be made on whether Charlotte was going to let Lincoln go back or not, David took a step back and let her be the mom and make the decision. But he also acknowledges that if Charlotte had not let him go, he would have stepped in and advocated for Lincoln because he feels like that was the right choice. Lincoln needed to go back and look for Bram. And David kind of gives her a pat on the back and says, I'm proud of you. You know, that's the kind of relationship they have. So I really liked seeing that exploration. These are just like really brief snippets, but they're really good. So my next one is a bit more lengthy, and they these kind of run together, this one and then the one after it. Bram and Jack are very much brothers in a lot of respects. In some ways, Jack was able to step in for Cullen when Bram first came to the future, show him the ropes and be his friend. In that brotherly love that they have for each other, it really allows them to have an honesty with each other. And to get mad at each other, but then also realize that they love each other as well. So when Bram has to go back for Jack, he's so pissed off and like ends up punching him, right? But at the same time, that's not a permanent anger. That's a for now anger because they, they love each other. Like they accept each other for their faults. The reason that I am so keen on thinking that Jack is not a selfish individual is because of what he does for Bram. When he realizes that he's onto the Confederate gold, rather than running off by himself, he brings Bram into it and says, 
hey, I know where the Confederate gold is. I know you've been looking for it. So let's go get it. You know, there's a considerate nature to him that just doesn't coincide with a selfish nature. They can't both coexist, I guess. So one of my favorite instances for Jack and Bram, I think, and one that like really highlights their relationship is when they're hunting for the gold and they're watching the guys put the lock on the shed where they've hidden the treasure. Jack has a PTSD moment where he hears the lock click into place and he has a flashback to when he was being held prisoner during the trial. Bram recognizes this in him. Bram understands this element to Jack's personality better than anyone else possibly could because Bram was also held prisoner at a similar point in time and knows what the triggers are. But Bram also brings up a good point that he has the light in the darkness of remembering Charlotte and Jack coming for him and helping break him out. Whereas Jack, when he was arrested, didn't really have that hope because he knew that Charlotte was in the future and didn't know where he was. I mean, Bram was there, thank God, and probably was able to help ease the situation. But still, Jack was being treated as FBI's most wanted. Yeah, it just became a situation where he felt really hopeless. The trigger becomes exponential for him versus Bram, or at least that's how Bram views it. So Bram, without saying a word, reaches over, wraps his hand around Jack's neck and squeezes it. It kind of like brings Jack back and Jack blows out a breath and nods that he's okay and they keep going. That's a bond between them that like you don't see that between any other characters in the series. That is something very specific to Bram and Jack. And whenever you see that PTSD popping through and Bram responding to that and knowing how to talk him down is compounded with the grief that he feels at the loss of Carolina Rose. So when Charlotte comes out and tells Jack that she didn't make it, Jack collapses and Bram is there to catch him. And I feel like that was appropriate because Jack and Bram had this conversation about what Carolina Rose meant to Jack while they were riding to go get the gold. And I feel like Bram is probably the only person that knew how Jack actually felt about Carolina Rose versus this assumption that was made by almost everybody else. Bram understands the power of the love that's created through the brooches, but he also understands Jack on a level that not a lot of characters do. So all of that together really just made that moment where Bram catches Jack before he can fall and holds him up is just the perfect image of their relationship, like holding each other up. Because Bram, as he's holding him up, before they go and walk in to see Carolina Rose's body, he says, I'm here, you don't have to do this alone. Like in literally a couple of hours earlier, Bram had just punched Jack in the jaw for like running off to San Francisco. And then we've done this, this turnaround to this wonderful brotherly love that we get in Jack's moment of need. My next topic does kind of go hand in hand with Jack and Bram. And that's the relationship between Jack and David. Now, Jack and David's relationship kind of started whenever the whole sapphire brooch stuff was going on, but we really saw it showcased in the emerald brooch. They're really good friends, have been for a while. It's so interesting that they're such good friends because there's such an age gap between them. There's probably like 15 years at least between them. I'm not sure on the specifics, but I do know that there's quite a gap there because Jack is several years older than Charlotte and uh, Charlotte is older than David by quite a margin. 
it's so interesting that they have this bond that is kind of carried through. And I love reading Jack and David. That's probably one of my favorite dynamics to read. But Jack is constantly holding himself up to David's expectations, much like James Cullen is always like, well, I'm not as good as Kevin or mom or dad or whatever. Like David is the milestone for Jack. You can see that when Jack is walking Carolina into the law office to meet her uncle, he goes to like defend her honor with an umbrella. And he kind of just laughs at himself because like, I would hate to see what David would think of this. (laughs) David would laugh my ass out of here. Honestly, I think where David and Jack's friendship really comes into it more so is after Carolina Rose's funeral. David is just a caretaker. Like that's who he is at heart. After all the ceremonial parts of the service and like all the formalities that go with a funeral, his inclination is to go in and sit with Jack and just be there for him, whatever he needs. And this is where the whole like self-harm conversation comes into it. But David is one of the only ones that can talk to Jack and really, I don't know, bring him down to earth almost, I guess. He's almost like a fatherly figure, you know, in a friendly way. But like, he's always looking out for Jack. But there's one part where David says, David had to sit on his hands and remind himself that Jack's heart was broken. Yelling at him to man up wouldn't do any good. Because Jack's just like drinking his sorrows away. But then there's also this connective moment between David and Bram where you realize that David and Bram are kind of like talking on the side and they have decided to do a tag team approach to this and make sure that Jack is taken care of. Jack kind of walks off and David says, well, I know that if I was hurting like that, all I would want to do is talk to Kenzie. And Bram likewise realizes that all he would want is Charlotte in that moment. They understand his grief because if their women weren't there for them to confide in, they would probably never find their way out of the bottom of the tequila bottle either, you know, or whatever alcohol you're drinking. It's very interesting to see how Bram and David have formed this protective circle around Jack in his time of need. Everybody, really, but specifically Bram and David, because they understand Jack. They're close friends with him anyway. And then a situation like this where they're fully aware of the implications of possibly, in theory, losing a soulmate. Like, we don't know for sure at this point in time that Carolina Rose wasn't Jack's soulmate. So... They're kind of treating it like that. So yeah, it was good to see them kind of like circle the wagons and and be there for him. So Elliot and Charlotte, this is a good one. They have a very unique relationship, a very good friendship. Other than Meredith, Charlotte is probably the only person that can just tell Elliot like it is and he's got to sit there and take it. (laughs) He doesn't necessarily like it. Charlotte's just a tough cookie and she doesn't take any shit from Elliot, which is exactly what he needs. And I think that's also why Charlotte is such good friends with Meredith because Elliot calls Charlotte Meredith's contemporary. They're the closest in age and they understand each other. But Elliot and Charlotte have a very unique relationship as opposed to everyone else because it's almost like a father-daughter dynamic, but kind of like a brother-sister thing. Like I said, Charlotte doesn't have to keep her mouth shut with Elliot. Like a lot of people just keep their mouth shut and just deal with his outbursts. And Charlotte is not one of those people. But also Elliot respects that behavior in Charlotte as well. Like he understands that if Charlotte feels like she needs to step up and say something, he's probably way out of line. There's one scene that is showcased after... They come back to the 21st century. Bram is still in the 19th century. And Elliot looks at her and says, I know I've been an ass. I deserve whatever you want to throw at me. 
My job is to hold this family together and I failed miserably. You didn't. You showed us all what dedication looks like. I can't thank you enough for what you've done. Charlotte did. She held the family together and it took a lot for Elliot to come on bended knee and be like, I'm sorry for being a jerk. (laughs) Please forgive me. And uh, thank you for everything you do. We really appreciate it. It's also a really key scene because not only does he apologize to her, but he also recognizes that since Bram is gone, somebody has to look out for Charlotte because Charlotte's nature is to just give and give and give and not expect anything in return, which isn't healthy. And normally she has Bram to look out for her and kind of like temper that tendency in her, but also to take care of her when the day is over. And when he's not there, Elliot realizes that she's not going to have anybody to do that for her and that he's going to have to step up and be that person. So he says to her, we depend on you, but at some point you have to see to your own needs or we'll take all you've got to give, expect even more and act betrayed when you come up short. For Charlotte, that's kind of the vibe that she's been getting this whole time. But to hear Elliot say it out loud is just confirming for her. Okay, like... I'm not crazy and I really do need to take care of myself because I can't help anybody if I'm not helping myself. So Elliot looks out for her. He looks out for everybody, but I think he especially looks out for Charlotte because she does have such a giving nature. And then Elliot and Kevin is my last one. My last little relationship goodie. So their relationship is kind of tenuous right now. It's kind of like They're being cordial with each other and they're functioning, but there's a lot that's been unsaid between them. Kevin just recently found out within a few weeks ago that Elliot is his biological father, but also Elliot almost lost Kevin, his son. That took a toll on him, I think. Like when we're talking about the stress that Elliot has gone through over the the course of recent events, almost losing his son really scared the living daylights out of him. Despite the fact that Kevin has a good prognosis and that he's recovering, Elliot is still very much concerned for him as a father and wants to make sure that Kevin is making the right life choices for his health and for his own personal benefit. I think Elliot likes JL because he knows that he can trust JL to take care of Kevin when Kevin doesn't want to take care of himself. You see Kevin kind of defaulting to that relationship that he and Elliot had had all those years ago when we first met Kevin in The Last McClenna. After Elliot has his TIA, Kevin comes in and a bit combs Elliot's hair and like hand presses all his clothes and makes sure he's all put together and neat and tidy. It was a very touching moment. Also shows the bond between these characters that like even though they're kind of on shaky footing for personal reasons, like they still really do love and care about each other and It's good to get the resolution for that when we finally do next book, but I love watching the dynamic between those two. So that wraps up my thoughts, but I will answer the question that I asked many of you at the very beginning, if you're still here. (laughs) I asked who you thought Catherine's favorite relationship is to write. So her answer is Charlotte and Elliot, which shocked me. I mean, I would have thought it was like Elliot and Meredith or something. One of those couples that we get a lot of scenes about Um, But she says she also really enjoys writing Charlotte and Bram's relationship, which I can see because Charlotte and Bram do have a very unique give and take relationship in comparison to a lot of the brooch people. So where does that leave us? 
that leaves us preparing to go into the unknown with the diamond brooch. The Spalding case is heating up. Her fiance was arrested for her murder and they found traces of blood in his car. But despite all that, Jack is still reeling from everything that happened in the three brooches and he's just not ready to go on another adventure. He's kind of done at this point. He says, you know, if Kevin and JL still want to go, if they want to take Connor and Pete, whatever, but I'm out. Which we all know the brooches have other ideas, <laughs> but he's passing the torch along. I mean, I don't know that Kevin and JL would be any better for the job after everything that they've gone through, but yeah, poor Jack. He's not in the best of spirits at the end of this book, but yeah. Amy Spaulding's still missing and somebody's got to go get her. So that's where this leaves us. Next book club will be the Diamond Brooch. I am ready for it, but it'll probably be November-ish. Look for the event. I will post it whenever I finally figure out what I'm doing with my life. Hope you guys will join me then. Thanks for hanging with me today. I know it's been a long one, but we got through the whole dang book. So it's been great chatting. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you next time. Have a good one, guys. Bye.